better. I know. Uh, the call recorder, damn it. <laughs> so I, I got here early, and and I was all proud of myself, hubris, uh, as one might one might call it, and thought, well, I'm I'm early. I want to show Don how early I am, how prepared. I've read through stuff, Don. I've had. I've been I, I, today is today is a podcast day, and and I'm, I've been focusing on <laughs> podcasting. Of course, what it comes down to the last important piece, which was never do this. this is this is a message to all the podcasters out there who who've already given this lesson. But I was so early that the naggy message that call recorder needed to be updated was that I normally skip over because I'm not prepared. Um, when I fire up Skype, I, I got this message and I just say, no, no, don't do it right now. And today I was like, well, I'm early. Why don't, why don't I just update call recorder? And I did. And then it threw all of my audio settings, which I had just tested into, uh, a, a chaos. You know, we have a term for that. <sighs> what is That's, it? It's uh, a schmelt. <laughs> it's schmelt. Schmelt. It's right. It's, it's totally schmelt. It's, and I was all ready to, to start this call by saying, how are you now? <laughs> Better patter. Let's get at it. it. Yeah, it can confirm. <laughs> and, and we have we have all we have all the time to do letter Kenny letter Kenny safety talk, um, which which I I, I understand uh, you you have uh, you're in the culture now. You're in the, very, in the lifestyle. I, here's the thing. I'm very disappointed in myself because you told me about Letter Kenny. Right. Um, my son told me about Letter Kenny. But you know what it took, Ben? It Someone took famous. Merlin talking about yes, and it's. And it's annoying because I had the opportunity to be first to something before Merlin, and and I blew it. I blew it. I, I, this is one where I – yes, you did. You did. And, <laughs> and also I'm disappointed in you for not listening to me uh, and your son. Oh, me too. Me too. I'm big, big time. Big We're all disappointed point. in you, Don. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and, uh, but this is one where I – I was even on the like the the pre ground floor. I knew about Letter Kenny before the show even existed because yep. there are these series of YouTube yep. videos yep. that that were just so like so on the nose, Southern Ontario where I'm from, and and I kept watching them over and over again to the point where Danny was like, "This is stupid. You, you why? How can you watch this over and over and still make yourself laugh?" And then I heard, "Oh, they're making a show," but I could only get it. Um, by, uh, non, non Hulu means, um, because mm. I, right. Because it didn't exist in, yep. in, in the U S yep. for, for yep. the first two or three seasons. And then all of a sudden they, uh, they arrived. Um, and so, so, so tell me where, where, where are you in, I am. I'm halfway. I'm halfway through season one, episode three. Um, and, and I have to say, I don't know if you know this, Ben, um, you're not you're not from Alaska, but you're from Canada, which is close. But the internet um, is is not a dump truck. Okay, it's a series of tubes. <laughs> it is a series um, of tubes. But occasionally, occasionally something might um, fall off the back of a truck, and then through a series of tubes, if you know the right person, you can get that thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's. I'm just saying. Yeah, you so, know, I, I was. Uh, I'm familiar. So I, so I, I, uh, I was debating whether to pay for Hulu. Um, um, but, but instead, um, you know, anyway, it tr- trucks and tubes, trucks and tubes. I, that's, that's how I learned all about it, um, was through trucks and tubes. So the, so the first season, so that we're now, um, uh, this, the series is, is now, uh, six seasons are complete. And in fact, um, next week, I think it's October 11th, the seventh season will drop on Hulu live and crave TV in Canada. And I'm sure it's, you can find it in Australia and all that good stuff. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's, what, what are we looking at? 40 episodes or something so far of this, of this show. And it's in, it's done, you know, six, six episodes per season, um, 20 minutes long or so. And it is, um, so, so you're in, you're in, I'm looking at the episodes, you're halfway through the, the episode called fart book. Yes. Which, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, where, where uh, according to Wikipedia, letter Kenny becomes enveloped in social media culture when the boys create a fart sharing website. Um, right. well, and, they don't really create, so the, they have the idea for the website, right. but it's actually the, the, the skids, skids yeah. that create the website. So, and I, yeah, I'm just, uh, I don't know how, when you talked about this, I don't know how this did not, cause it, it's, it really did not take, it did not take much. I mean, really what it took, what it took was, I think, yeah, well, again, uh, Merlin tweeted the, uh, the verse. The, you know, the kind of the, the first opening scene from S1E1. And then I was like, well, you know, this is real. This is really funny. So but also the complicating factor. Um, and I maybe I knew this before. This is a show. This is this is this is a Don show, right? This is not a Don. Oh, Christian no. Show. Yeah, this is not. So, yeah. But the good news is there's lots of sports on TV. So, <laughs> so I, can, I can watch uh, Letter Kenny on my iPad while Kristen watches sports. So it's right. Good. Right. It's it's a uh, figure skating season and track and field season. Right. Or Exa- exactly. Yeah. Uh, tra- track and Track's field. Over. That's the. Uh, uh, Doha uh, uh, in Qatar. Cutter, oh, Qatar. Say, uh, there's a thing in Qatar where it's very hot, and they're doing sports. They got the, they got sports. Okay, so so I'm going to tell you about the. Um, this is for you to note in your in your drafts um, notes about Letterkenny. Mm. Um, there there are uh, four episodes that I think are are just the perfect episodes um, in in all of uh, Letterkenny, and one is Lazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it is actually uh, pronounced that, that, that's how I would pronounce it, Lazik. Uh, but uh, it is the French Hicks, um, and it's in season three. Um, and they uh, they go to um, uh, I think that's the one. Yeah, the the Hicks go fishing on the Quebec border and meet their French doppelgangers, and it's <laughs> and, it, and it is. Um, it, one of, one of the greatest, uh, um, the, one of the greatest episodes ever. And then that, those same, uh, French doppelgangers come back in, um, the, the final episode of season five. Uh, and then there's, so th- those, those two are my favorite. Um, third is a, an episode called the fuss at the ag hall, which you're almost close. You're close to that's the first, first episode of season two. Um, and uh, it's because it really, really reminds me of growing up, and uh, and and especially the line. Um, I, I think it, I think it is uh, agricultural. The agricultural halls for agricultural music only, um, and, <laughs> and agricultural music is my favorite term. Uh, and then there's a there's a, a Christmas party uh, episode in uh, season five that's also really really good. Anyway, they're they're all it's 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 pretty funny. Um, it's very. I mean, it is. Danny, my you know my my lovely wife, she swears that this is not exactly where we grew up, like that this is not no one talks like this, and and I think that she is so wrong. Um, so so there is even a debate in our house on whether how how realistic this is. I am I've described this to people um, multiple times in the food safety world who have who who have said to me, "Have you heard of this Letter Kenny show?" Um, I've described it to them as very very much exactly what I what I uh, grew up. Uh, I, I know I, it's like I know these people. Um, well, and this is the way this is the way that you sold the show. You attempted to sell the show unsuccessfully yeah. to sell the show to me. Um, right, right. Yeah. I, we've we've been through this, and now you're yeah. here. 
Um, here. So, and the other thing too, that we will, we will definitely link to. So, and this is, this is kind of a nice, um, uh, uh, link back to, to Apple related stuff. So there is a, uh, Apple, um, related, well, is it wait now, is this an, this is, this is an Apple site, the loop. Um, Oh, maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe. Hmm. Okay. Never mind. I thought this was. I thought this was. Uh, oh, Loop Insight is the is the, the the website by the Apple blogger. But anyway, there is an article uh, on the Loop.ca uh, entitled "Lender Kenny Sayings You Need to Incorporate oh, yeah. in Your Daily Life." So um, we will definitely. I will link to that uh, for sure. So, yeah. <laughs> These Lender Kenny Sayings. I'm gonna not... really try. I'm gonna really try to work on this. I think this is a good project. Yeah, I think so too. <clears throat> Some of these Lender Kenny Sayings, I. Grew up hearing at the at the agricultural hall, uh, <laughs> as well as at the arena, and I don't know if I've ever told you this this story, but it, my my dad doesn't, I don't think listens to the podcast. My mom, I think, has listened to a couple of episodes, but um, I grew up. My dad, my dad used to play a lot of hockey, as as do I, um, and he would drag drag me to the arena uh, for tournaments and games and stuff. And I don't know why this like I was allowed. Um, but I used to hang out in the in the dressing room, which I the the dressing room is no is no place for children. Um, <laughs> but as a but as a I don't know nine and ten year old, um, you know the same age as my as my kids now, I would I would hang out. My dad would play hockey and hang out in the dressing room. Some guy would would give me like a dollar to go buy him a, a, a you know a diet coke or a pickled egg or something. Pack of darts. <laughs> Pack of darts. Um, yeah, and uh, and my dad my dad said things like. Look, you're going to hear things in here, um, and and you're going to this this situation is not for for children. But if you tell your mother about any of the things that you hear in here, neither of us are going to be allowed to come back. So mm-hmm. so don't so don't don't spoil this. For if you if you like this, don't spoil it, and please don't spoil it for me, or I'm not going to let you. You're not going to be part of this anymore. Um, and, and, and most of the sayings from letter Kenny, I think I heard in those, in the dressing room, uh, from, from my dad's, uh, you know, my, you know, old, older guys that, that played hockey with my dad. So, well, my, my closest experience to that was, uh, caddying, uh, for my, for my grandfather at his, at his golf course. And he, at one point I do remember him very clearly telling me, look, you're going to hear people say stuff in the locker room and you're just not to repeat it. Right. Yeah. Um, but things that you can say are, uh, f- like flow, which is long flowing hockey hair, which one of my kids has, uh, oh, yes. uh it, or, uh, um, there, there's some food safety, uh, uh, content to letter Kenny saying so. scoots, the scoots. Yeah. <laughs> scoots. Yeah. Got a little, your, your sister's lasagna gave everyone the scoots for weeks up in here. <laughs> and I, you know, I love, I love that, that, you know, you would think if it's a show about Canada, that the hockey players would be like the good guys, but they're, they're no, not, no, they're not, the, they're the doofuses. Okay. And this is the thing about Canadian culture. The, that's the hockey players. Those are the guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Jonesy and Riley. Um, all right. Okay. So, uh, that's, that's enough, uh, letter Kenny, letter Kenny talk. Um, but yeah, do, do check it out. And I, you know, what's, what's fun about this now is like, I was on this wave cause this all came out in, you know, 2014, no, 2015 is, or 16 was when the, uh, first season was released. And so for three years, I've been talking about this thing and I, and now all of a sudden, um, people who I won't out, uh, but in the mm. food safety world, they'll text me and say, uh, this is, this is a pretty good show. Uh, you should check it out. I was like, mm-hmm. check it out. I, no, yeah, about I this. discovered it. Yeah. <laughs> check it out. I made, I am this, I am, <laughs> I am letter Kenny. Um, so anyway, it's a, it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty funny show. Um, so, Oh, Dom, we have, we have so much stuff. We got stuff. To oh, talk and, about. and here's the thing, Ben, I just sent, spent 
um, uh, an hour and a half, hour and 20 minutes this morning sitting in a meeting talking about New Jersey's farmer market. So oh. I could do I could do a whole show on farmers markets in New Jersey and farmers markets generally. And okay. I mean, like I, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, without even doing any follow up or anything else, I could just do a whole show on that because I've got there was just so many, and I had to leave the meeting early because I had to come do a podcast. Um, but there was just so much good discussion, and boy, it's uh, it's a kind of the wild west out there. Well, let's talk about it. I, I'm 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 here for I'm here for farmers market New Jersey. Well, what? so yeah, okay, so go what's ahead. Happening? So what's up? Well, so why don't why don't you start by telling me how farmers markets are regulated in North Carolina, and we can use that to benchmark against New Jersey. Sure. Yeah, and and so um, I, I I got involved in farmers markets uh, not soon after I started here at NC State, and and it was because of the um, regulatory climate around farmers markets that, that someone at the department of agriculture reached out to me to say, could you, could you help us? And so how farmers markets are regulated here are, um, they, they are, they're a retail setting and retail settings, um, where, um, things like, uh, butchering, uh, and, um, seafood and delis, uh, and, uh, cut produce don't exist. Um, are all under the Department of Agriculture, and farmers markets themselves lie within the Department of Agriculture. And our our regulation, so we, there, there's no food code application at a farmers market um, in in our state. Uh, they they fall under um, I, I guess re, good retail practices, um, but they are also not proactively inspected. So um, my my understanding, and this was a while back, and I don't think anything has changed, is that um, a, a Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services um, inspector um, will go and visit a, a farmer's market if a complaint's been, uh, been lodged. And, and so we have, at last count, um, I think we were somewhere around 500 farmer's markets in our state. Um, or 500 entities that would qualify as uh, you know as a retail farmers market, not a farm stand, but some sort of gathering of multiple vendors. And sometimes these are in really like well infrastructured areas. So we have a state farmers market that that is actually run and managed by our Department of Agriculture here in Raleigh. Um, but but then you know I, I can go. Um, maybe three miles from my house to a hospital parking lot. And I think it's every Wednesday during the summer, a farmer's market like just appears there. Um, and, and so, so you've got like all the gamut from, um, a lots of, lots of people there to help to, to almost, you know, you know, just a, a loose association of four vendors that all show up in a, in a, in a parking lot. But yeah, the department of agriculture, um, will regulate them uh you know not technically but but that's that's who has jurisdiction over um most of the vendors you know think someone who's selling raw agricultural uh, commodities or um honey or like prepared salsa um that would all fun, fall under uh department of ag huh so so in new jersey it's it there's a really interesting sort of bright line right and so we and they would be if they're regulated they're late regulated by state local health right uh state and local health and 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 it, so not not ag so ag is is not involved <clears throat> but um there's kind of a bright line between for whole uncut produce 
and than everything else, right? And the other complicating factor is we don't have uh, a cottage food law in New Jersey right now. Right, although, right. and 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 for for every single time I got together um, with New Jersey Department of Health, um, there would there would always be the statement, and it will never happen, right? <laughs> um, and ex- except for today where my colleague at the Department of Health said, and hopefully I'm retired before it happens. So because we have a New Jersey cottage food group that has been quite active and, and really pushing things, you know, for, with working with legislators and working through legal channels. Um, and New Jersey is right now the only state in the country that doesn't have some sort of a cottage food provision, right? And so, so that's that's a complicating factor. Um, and then, and then the other thing that 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 ha- that that it took a lot of discussion, or that that you know, basically, you know, well, a lot of we spent a lot of time discussing this morning was eggs, right? Mm. Uh, and whether eggs should be refrigerated or not. Um, and then we had folks um, at, you know, we had, and again, it was a good representation around the table, probably lo- he- heavy on local public health, but there was a farmer there, there was a woman that runs the uh, new. Jersey's farmers market. Um, let's see, uh, the, the Council of Farmers and Communities, which is basically the group that sort of nominally doesn't, not a regulatory way, but sort of oversees or, or tries to help uh, people that run farmers markets. Um, and then again, there's a big discussion, as you as you pointed out in your in your your comments, a big discussion between th- things that have a. Uh, 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 that are truly temporary and things that are not. So, for example, we have the Trenton Farmers Market, which has been uh, in existence since 1939, um, and, and at the current location since 1948. Um, and it's it's a it's a building, it's a structure, right? And it's, so it's very well organized. And people come in, and they you know they have electric, and they have coolers, and they sell all sorts of things um, to to something that is just a like a pop up tent, uh, you know, that they have just on the road there, right? Um, and so, yeah, big, and then, and we don't even know, like, for example, local uh, public health or state state public health doesn't really even, they like, the, there's a state list of, of farmer's markets that the state is aware of, but then there's all the people that have, that all the farmer's markets that exist that are not on that list, and then right. what's not on that list changes. Um, and so, yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> and, 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 you know, you might have a farmer's market that's provisionally allowed to sell uncut produce. And then, you know, again, great stories from health inspectors. They show up one week and uh, there's eggs now. Okay. Um, and then they come back the next week and now there's some fresh mozzarella cheese. And, right, okay. right, right. Yeah. And then some um, salsa. And then there, and we right. didn't, oh, yeah. and salsa, right. And we didn't even get into um, hand washing, right? So, a couple, and I, you know, I was biting my tongue because I didn't want to dominate the conversation. There's a lot of discussion about hand washing and hand washing provisions. Um, and, and yeah. And so at the whole, anyway, so where, where we left it was maybe that there ought to be um, uh, some sort of training, not maybe not. And then, and again, what, what my local public health or my state public health contact was looking for is like, well, for, for well-established farmer's markets, there is a, a point of contact person, and that person may uh, have oversight of food safety. And there Maybe they don't have food safety expertise, but they have oversight, right, to check permits and things like that. Um, but he would like to see for every farmer's market that there be a person and that that person have some sort of nominal food safety training, if, if for nothing else, to know the difference between whole uncut produce um, and eggs and, and uh, mozzarella, let's say, fresh mozzarella cheese or salsa or, or you know, baked goods or, or whatever, so that all of this could be appropriately managed. So it was actually a very exciting and interesting uh, conversation. And there, there would have been very few things I would have left that meeting for Ben, but our podcast is one of them. <laughs> hey, well that that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
So uh, I I just sent you a bunch of stuff yeah, um, in uh, in in the world of uh, texting, um, and so um, Judy Harrison, who who is uh, retiring, uh, actually I think in the next couple of weeks uh, at the University of Georgia, um, she uh, edited a book on uh, farmers market food safety, and the reason why I sent you this is because um, I had a I had a student. Um, Allison Sane, um, who uh, was, um, not to be confused with the, the, uh, great David Bowie ad- album, Aladdin Sane. Right. Right. Not Aladdin Sane, uh, Allison Sane, uh, uh, Allison, um, <laughs> uh, and her, her main name I think was, was, is, was Smathers. Um, so I didn't, I actually didn't even think about like how her name has changed to Alice Insane. Um, <laughs> Uh, but but Allison looked at um, farmers market practices around hand washing from a from a manager standpoint, not so much with vendors. And the goal was um, to create a, a curriculum that we could deliver in North Carolina um, and elsewhere um, for that would focus on what's the best way to run a farmers market. Um, and hand washing was one of the things that um, that she that she looked at. And we never. Um, she, we, we actually did some secret shopping uh, for that project. We, we had um, our cooperative extension agents um, pose as uh, uh, just as shoppers at, at farmers markets, not in their county. And they went in and didn't do they didn't observe like um, people at all. What they did was sort of went through an audit and checklist of what what type of facilities um, existed and how far were restrooms and are there hand washing uh, facilities and. Anyway, we all of the um, the particulars of that study, I I wrote up into into the a book chapter for for Judy's book, um, and as I look at the Springer website, it is the only one of the only chapters that you can buy on its own. Mm. <laughs> yeah, which I don't know I don't know why that is, um, but uh, so so there's some so there's some information um, in that you know in that chapter. I don't know if I can. I, yeah, I don't think it's posted anywhere else. Uh, but um, but anyway, uh, the I've always looked at markets as you have this collection of vendors, and what the vendors do is nested in what the manager tells them to do, and and the manager of the of the market. And that was how I how I approached stuff at, at you know at the beginning. And in I, I think it was. Um, 2014 when IAFP was in Charlotte um is that do you think does that sound like the right time don't oh, come on. that's why the internet exists man <clears throat> so I don't have to hold stuff like that in my brain Charlotte IAFP um uh 2013 uh it was in it was in Charlotte I I put together a symposia with um uh with Renee Boyer and Judy Harrison on farmers markets, and we had a farmers market manager from North Carolina come talk to IAFP, um, you know, membership, uh, you know, whoever wanted to go to the symposium. And to my my real goal was as as I started this as a as a food safety uh, extension specialist, I had this preconceived no- notion of what like it's easy to change these practices. Just you know, have a backbone as a manager. And get people to wash their hands. Like you control them, you can kick them out. And the manager who we had um, talk through this um, the symposium really blew that apart and said, "No, in, in a lot of cases, 
the managers are hired as an administrative help for the vendors by the vendors. Mm-hmm. So, so she, she talked about this really um, interesting, um, I, I guess, like balancing act of um, they, you know, as, as a manager, you might want, you might, you might note that there are a bunch of food safety things going on. And if you, highlight these food safety things that are going on and you highlight specific vendors about it. Well, those vendors might be board members and those board members yep. might, might just fire you. Yep. Yep. And it was like, Oh damn, like that, that's a whole, that's right. So, so we've got, it's not just this like, you know, top down kind of situation. They, they have to balance that. They, they le- legitimately are working for, for those, um, you know, the, those, those vendors and those vendors may not Agree may not see food safety as important as the manager does. Um, may not be exposed to the same same level of um, uh, information about outbreaks and illnesses. Uh, you know all, all these types of things. And so it was really interesting to hear the kind of like real life um, scenario. And so so how you know what what my what my goal was, and I'll see if I can find this. Um, online somewhere, uh, was, was to, with Allison driving this, she created this curricula that we then trained a bunch of extension agents on in North Carolina, not just family consumer science agents, but, um, agents who are doing horticulture and local foods, anybody who might be working with farmers markets and, and then give them, um, some, you know, level of information about what are best practices in running, running this, you know, running uh, a market. So is that training curriculum available? Yes, yeah, I think so. Um, and and so that morphed into um, uh, another project with uh, with Renee Boyer um, as well, and she's actually run uh, led two NIFA projects on on farmers markets, taking curricula that that Judy had developed at University of Georgia, material that Renee that she had developed at, at Virginia Tech and the stuff that, that we did here in NC State, putting that all together into like a, a big package. Um, and I'll, I'll well, for for show notes, as we keep talking about farmers markets, I'll find some some links to all this stuff. Um, and it it's it, it is a bit of a um, there, there's difficulty in doing this in a national way because of the nuances and the regulations. And, right. and that, you know, I mean, I think you highlighted that with, with New Jersey, just certain things that we, we do in North Carolina are allowed to do from a risk management standpoint, reg, you know, policy risk management, um, won't, aren't, aren't available to you in, in New Jersey. Um, and, and so you got this, you know, totally, yeah, totally different, um, approach, which is, which is kind of crazy. Well, but I, th- I think there's, there's a way to design a curriculum, that's based around food safety, right? Because like there's one on the one level, as I, as I often say, the bacteria don't care, right? So let's, let's talk about what it means to be safe in terms of food safety. And let's talk about risks and then let's talk about, and then overlaid on that basic science curriculum, there's the policy considerations, right? Like what are the rules in New Jersey versus North Carolina versus Georgia versus Virginia? Um, and then, and that's the piece that requires customization for each state. It's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's very much a traditional extension model where, um, you know, what you need to grow strawberries in New Jersey might be different advice for growing strawberries in another state where with, with different, you know, climate and weather patterns, et cetera. Right. And so what we do in extension is we take what we know about the science and we take what another state has done and we, adapt it to local conditions so that it's so that it's suitable right 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 yeah 
and 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 then focus on risk reduction regardless of the of the regulatory regime, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. Exactly. Well, speaking of regulatory regime, the other nuance, and you, you may have this in North Carolina as well, is one of the comments that came up at, at our discussions this morning was, well, what happens? Like, okay, you could put a, you could put a manager in charge of this farmer's market, but what happens when uh, local health comes in and starts making trouble and this whole farmer's market was created because some elected official thought it would be good to drive traffic to the town, right? Oh, yeah. Like now, now you've got, um, let's let's say, you know, again, just to use an example, Freehold Farmers Market. I, I I don't know if it even exists or or you know, but let's just say, right? Like you know, John Q. Town <laughs> um, uh, Farmers Market. Um, uh, and the, and they, they just think it's an opportunity to have people come to the town and spend money in, in the local downtown area while they come to this farmer's market. Never mind the fact that if they didn't do it right, people could get food poisoning, which would not be good news for the town. But I, but I don't think the, the regulatory officials necessarily – or the, I don't think the local elected officials necessarily think through all of that. Right, right. Well, and I'll throw another one on for you. So um, we – in our regulations, uh, farmers markets are, uh, are regulated by um, you know, the Department of Agriculture, as I mentioned before, except when that farmers market is actually not called a farmers market, but is called a um, curb market, mm-hmm. which is a farmers market. And curb markets are run by extension. So, so we, we have – uh, it's not – it's more than a handful and it's not like 60, but there's somewhere – my guess is around 15 curbside markets in North Carolina that are wholly facilitated by uh, cooperative extension. So so the manager is an extension agent um, or someone who works and, and reports to a county extension director, and, and which is a really unique situation for us because I wouldn't expect that cooperative extension would run a um, food lion. Or yeah. uh, Wegmans, right? Like, like this. So, so now you're you're trying to, and, and it's the, it, the, that regulation. I, I don't know the full story on it, but it had something to do with, um, you know, some some political decision saying, um, you know, we're we'll let's regulate everything except for the folks that we, you know, that are close to us in, in extension, and and they can handle it. Um, That's kind of a conflict of interest, though, right? Oh, for because sure. If you're, yeah. If your if your job is food safety, but your job is also now promoting this market, uh, you know that puts you in a potentially in a bind where, like, okay, to do the right thing in terms of food safety, you may impact the ability of that that market to operate, which could reflect negatively on extension or vice versa. If you if you don't pay attention to food safety, you could have an, an outbreak, which would reflect negatively on extension. Right. Right. All yes. All of all of those things. Um, and it, um, yeah, it puts, puts you kind of in a weird, in a weird situation. And, and also the, like, in, this is, you know, something that, that I've had lots of discussions over my you know decade here about, it puts, we're, puts us into a weird position where we're also trying to teach people at other farmers markets, what the best practices are. And, and we really have to, you know, in the old cliche of like, talk the talk and walk the walk, mm-hmm. um, you, you gotta, you, if you're going to teach somebody, here's the best way to do it, then you sure as hell better be doing it. 
right? Like in your own, right. in your own market. Well, that's, that's what I tell, you know, I tell my graduate students that work in my lab. It's like, look, I serve on the university biosafety committee. <laughs> yes. We, we have to have this lab be squeaky clean in terms of biosafety following the rules, right? Because that would be horrible, right? Like I'm, I'm on the university committee. We can't screw this up guys. Like this is, this is important stuff. You're right. And, and I, you know, uh, Similarly, that's where I am with when it comes to IRB and in, in our uh, human mm-hmm. subjects, um, uh, you know, situation of you know, I, I, we talked about this in a previous podcast that well, the reason why I'm on IRB and, uh, <laughs> but but now that I'm there, um, you're putting Ebola on people's yeah, hands, put, as I recall. Exactly, putting Ebola on people's hands, and and, and actually, um, I think it's next week. Uh, let me see. I'm I'm speaking in Beth McCoy's class uh, via Skype about it, uh, about consent and IRB and. Um, and just, you know, my perspective as a, as a researcher on, on this incident. Anyway, um, we'll link to the, the story. Oh, this is, a uh, Beth, uh, yeah. uh, a distinguished teaching professor of Geneseo yeah. class. Yes. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So, um, so I'll, I'll, yeah, I think next October 16th, I'll be in her, uh, I'll be talking in her class. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, you're in a weird situation in farmer's markets if you're quote regulating it plus promoting it plus trying to teach other people how to manage it. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's, it's like all the stuff that, that you and I talk about, it is not that it's undoable, right? Like this, this conflict is not something that we, we should say, throw up our hands and be like, Oh, we can't, we can't do all these things. I think we can, we just have to be really careful and, and thoughtful and purposeful about decisions we make at a farmer's market and how we're going to teach people. And, and, and definitely can't expect that if we aren't able to follow the same best practices in our own in our own situation, then, then it, it's going to be difficult for us to change someone's behavior or really impact their their practices in their own in, in their farmers market. Um, uh, farmers markets. I'm like I'm glad we're we're having this conversation because it, it is it's one of those messy parts of of food distribution that really like gets me into food safety. Like this is there there are there are safe ways to to do it. Um, we don't have to have really like crazy infrastructure. We don't have to put farmers markets out of out of you know out of business um, because you know they don't have a building with uh, you know warm running water, right? Like if we were trying oh. to apply the food code, right? Like we yep. can we can manage this, yep. um, and and it is. It's a fun, it's, it's a it's a it's a hundred hundred degree water, Ben. Hundred degree, hundred degrees. Got to be warm, Ben. Hundred degrees. <sighs> sorry, sorry. Heart, yeah, wash your wash your hands in that hundred degree water. Um, it, it, but but we, you can do it, right? Like you could you you, yeah. you can reduce risk at a farmer's market just as well as you can do it at McDonald's. Um, it's different risks, and it and it's going to take different priority decisions. But um, but it's doable, and yeah, and well, I, I, I like that. I think you can reduce risk at both places. I'm not sure that you can reduce risk to the same degree, but the risks start off at a different degree, right? right. McDonald's yeah. are cooking burgers, you know, uh, raw hamburger from a from a frozen state, whereas in a farmer's market, you may or you may not be doing that. So, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that we can both agree that it's about risk reduction, right? And it's about it's about the most effective risk reduction that you can achieve. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely, and and that it's. Um, by by nature, it, it is a a messier place. Me- messier, not food safety, but messier. Um, in, in you know different different things to worry about and and set up differently. You know, just the you know one of my examples or one of the things I remember from from Allison's work was. Um, you know, okay. Best practices is, is have you know go wash your hands after you do something like use the restroom. Like well. 
we don't really we don't have a restroom here. So what do you do? Well, we we use the town hall, but it it's only open um, from you know noon till four, and the farmers market opens before noon. And so what? So it's like you, the more you ask people about like, well, what are you what are you doing? Like if it's un- yeah. unlikely that people are not going to the restroom. Like well. Um, no, they're probably using a local business or they might be using a tree, right? Like, like, right. and everywhere in between, uh, um, those, those two things. It's like, okay, well, okay. If, if we're, if you're presenting me with those options, well, why don't we, why don't we come up with a way for you to, um, have a low cost handwashing unit that you can build or you can purchase or, or what, exactly. you know, whatever, right? Like it doesn't, you don't right. need to be able to, you know, let people into the, to, to the town hall or, or whatever. Um, so the, you know, the other, the other thing and I've, I, I spend a lot of time taking pictures at farmer's markets. Um, I was in, I, we haven't really talked too much about this, but I went to Hawaii. Uh, I just tell everybody now. Um, and I say things like, Don, have you ever been to Hawaii? And we did, we talked a little bit on the last uh, podcast. And we did. What, but, um, it's like, I've discovered this place that no one's ever, like, I just feel like no one's ever been there. And of course, have everyone, you, have you heard of this show called Letter, Letter Kenny? Kenny? Exactly. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. a really good show. Ben. Yeah. Right, right, right. Like everyone's been to Hawaii. Um, uh, but so I, I saw some, um, uh, see if I can find a picture and I'll post this. I didn't do it. I have it in my phone. Um, but, uh, as I just yank it out of the wall, um, a picture of a cat standing across, um, a bunch of cut (laughs) produce at Mm -hmm. a roadside stand in Hawaii that, um, that we had stopped at to buy frozen coconut or cold, you know, ice cold co- yep. coconut. Yep. Yep. And, and it was like, you know, it was, there was nothing, um, nothing really surprising about it, but that might not be the best way to reduce risk of, you know, cat, cat poop on my, on my coconut. Yeah. Well, and, and, and in fact, the thing that to me is interesting about farmers markets is that they, they are so diverse, right? We have everything from the Trenton farmers market, which has been there for more than 50 years. And it's a brick and mortar location, uh, that has vendors that have been coming for years versus like a pop-up location. That's really a temporary food establishment that is supposedly only selling, uh, whole produce, but that all of a sudden, um, you know, there, somebody wants to sell lemonade, right? And then, and then that was the first, the first thing I wrote down in my notes from this meeting is, oh, you're making lemonade and you think you're covered under some farm, farmland, uh, provision. <laughs> well, did you grow those lemons in New Jersey? <laughs> like, of course not. Of course not. And then the other, the other great story that came up is like the one, the farm, the one farmer that was there, uh, basically said, uh, yeah, I was at a farmer's market. Um, that was, you know, it's a two hours farmer, two hour farmer's market. And the inspectors came and they told me I had to ice my lettuce. And I told them I wasn't doing that. Right. <laughs> and, and, and they went uh, away and, and they yeah. went away and they came back later and they said, yeah, you don't have to do that <laughs> because obviously they talked to somebody about the need for refrigeration of whole heads of lettuce. Um, and, and also probably that, you know, the time window and yeah, you're right. I mean, he, he didn't, he doesn't have to refrigerate his lettuce, but now, but what about eggs, right? That's where the discussion got into eggs. It's like, well, you know, now we got to start asking questions like, what's the size of your flock, right? I mean, and so it, it gets, and, and and for those that are maybe that are not food safety people, we, but we've, you know, but, and if you are a longtime listener, I'm sure that we did a long deep dive on the 
bananas nature of egg regulations in this country because I got a, I got an email from from somebody at some point and I dug into it and we went through and we read right. off all the different pro the provisions in the different aspects of the regulations and it's it's freaking complicated Ben yeah no it's it's totally complicated and and like you said the bugs don't care right <laughs> right they um so, all right, my, my last little bit of um, leafy greens, uh, or not leafy greens, uh, farmer's market is related to leafy greens uh, a little bit. And when we adopted the food code, I'm just sending you tons of text now. Um, mm-hmm. When we adopted the food code in North Carolina, there was this weird situation where, you know, I, farmer's market, cut leafy green, um, not having a specific temperature, even, even for bagged, bagged lettuce, like, and, and so this would be lettuce that would not just be the har- the harvest cut. Um, but I can buy shredded Ziploc bagged lettuce, um, trademark Ziploc, whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, at, at a farmer's market, I still can today. And it's, it's in a weird regulatory situation where it would fall under, um, you know, now it would fall under FISMA and prevent control, but it would be exempt. And does someone have to actually keep it refrigerated um, at at the farmers market? And I got involved in this conversation because of the farmers market stuff that we were doing. And and the real question that drove this was, what if uh, as a restaurant operator, and this is not uncommon, I would go to the farmers market and uh, I'm 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 doing a farm to table sort of concept. And now I'm going to buy cut leafy greens from an approved source because we, we have a situation where what, you know, someone who's selling cut leafy greens at the farmer's market, if they're exempt from FISMA, they still would be an approved source. They, they, they're, they're following all the, all the regulations that apply to them and may, and there may not be any regulation because they're exempt. Um, but the food code says I have to purchase the, or I have to, um, I have to uh, receive the cut leafy green uh, uh, below uh, 41 degrees or below, or it might be below 41 degrees. So, so the person who's selling it to me at the farmer's market doesn't have to meet any, um, any uh, specific temperature based on the, their situation. Again, bugs don't care, but, but I have to purchase it at 41 or I have to receive it. So, so how, how do I do that? And this, you know, we went down this like real esoteric path of, well, I could buy it at whatever temperature I want. And then I put it in a cooler and, and now I'm quote receiving it below 41 degrees and I'm, everybody's good at, you know, at the, at the restaurant uh, or, or food code wise. And it's not like trying to try to doing, doing that esoteric conversation doesn't get to the, well, what's the risk that we're trying to reduce and, and what, what temperature do we need to, to focus on and all those types of things. But it ended up getting us into a situation of like, well, what are temperature patterns of cut leafy greens looking like? And, and we didn't do a whole lot in farmer's markets because farmer's market vendors weren't super excited about that. You know, they, they didn't, they weren't, they were unsure where the interpretation of the rule was going to be and, and what it would show. So, but we did do it with schools um, and then found like, you know, quite, quite not, um, not a whole lot, but using some data loggers, we found that there would be temperature, um, uh, the temperature would go above 41 degrees and then it would drop back down and it was out for display. You know, we, you, there, there was this cumulative effect of, of temperature, which could impact growth. 
Yeah. Well, and this was the experiment um, where your graduate student, somebody thought she was making meth in her That's car, right. right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Ellen, that's, yep. a, that's a callback. Yeah, yeah. So so anyway, that but that started as a conversation about farmer's markets. Right. Because uh, you can get these types of, you know, cut leafy greens there. So um, cool. All right. Well, what else? So 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 what's like, I guess what happens next? Right. So you guys had this meeting, you talked about a lot of different things. What do you what, what are the what are the next steps for farmers markets in New Jersey? Well, the next step for me was to leave the meeting early because I had to do a podcast. So, but but there I there you will. go, ding number two. <laughs> I, I'm, I, so I'm. This is a subcommittee of the overall uh, Chapter Twenty Four committee. And actually, as I was leaving, I, I whispered to the to the guy from local uh, from State Public Health that was running the meeting. I said, "Hey, I'm sorry, I got to leave. I got a, I got another uh, very important meeting I have to go to." <laughs> um, but um, but but he said, "Oh, you come to the meeting next week because we have a regular uh, committee meeting uh, about about Chapter Twenty Four." And so I'm, I'll get an update from him at that point. So. Cool. Okay. Well, if uh, you know, I've shared a bunch of stuff with you, and send them the send them the link to the episode. Yeah. <laughs> say if you yeah, want to download no, anything, no, I'm not going to do that. But, <laughs> I'll, but, I'll, but I'll but I'll collate a bunch of links for them. And I think we've talked about this before, and you've sent me links before. But this this show notes will be a good uh, will be a good place to to find all those links. Hey, before I forget about it, um, I do want to briefly say, um, I uh, and I will send you I will send you a picture of this in just a minute. So I had the opportunity to go and visit uh, Denver because I did a workshop for the wonderful uh, Jennifer McIntyre from United Fresh Produce, and it was on produce food safety. And specifically, I was talking about sampling. Um, but while I was there, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, have uh, dinner with my with my son and my daughter-in-law, and she gave me an amazing uh, present. And I'm going to send you a picture of that present in just a minute. Okay. That's cool. Um, I, will, I, I will await the arrival of the, uh, of the picture of the present. Oh, oh, and hey, by the way, uh, Food Safety Talk 18, entitled Bunkum, uh, was the episode where we first talked about 18, episode 18, 18. Ben, was the f- one where we first talked about your graduate student um, possibly making meth um, in the trunk of her car. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. <laughs> Bunkum. Bunkum I, I, as in Bunkum County, I bet. Yeah, but but I, was that, that was episode 18 back in 2012, Ben. We have been doing this a long time. Oh, my gosh. We have. I've had – you know what's crazy is I've had graduate students since 2012. <laughs> it's crazy you've been there for for 10 years that's it, that's crazy it is it really is um uh cool um okay well while while i will await your your picture to arrive mm-hmm. um i uh so i'm going to tell you about a podcast um, <laughs> um and i'm going to tell you this this is more of uh an experience so on on saturday night um Danny and I went to see Criminal, uh, which is a podcast that is uh, it's about criminals. Uh, hmm. <laughs> Don, uh, it's a it, it is that you'll see the parallels uh, between our podcast and, and this podcast. It is um, pr- produced and recorded in North Carolina, okay. um, just you know, like half of our podcast is. Um, and, <laughs> and it is the Canadian uh, half, the Canadian half is a, uh, it, this is from the criminal website is a true crime podcast that understands crime. Uh, and some of the, some of the crimes are really interesting. Uh, there's some food safety connections about poisonings, um, and some of it's North Carolina content, but it's a, it's a podcast that, that Danny really, really likes the host. Her name is uh, Phoebe judge. 
and it, it is it's a very it's it's a very different podcast from from ours. It's it's like a storytelling kind of like serial um, style. Oh, like what are you saying? A professionally done podcast. There's l- let's say there's production. Let's let's see. <laughs> um, well, there's production production <laughs> on our podcast too. It's just not professional. Right, right. Um, it's it's I, I would say criminal is is akin to the Dubai Friday mystery episode uh, where Max oh, yeah, solves yeah, a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and anyway, it's a great a phenomenal for. Uh, storytelling and and so i i went you know um listeners of our podcast will know that every once in a while don and i do these things live um and this was the first time that i had been to someone else's podcast live and and i had binged maybe 20 episodes of criminal over the last couple of weeks in preparation for this and i want to tell you that this it blew me away how um just just the the entertainment uh, that i that i received the production like i i watched you know i watched I, I viewed it as a an audience member right like so so like I, I was just there to enjoy the stories but then as a podcaster i thought about just constructing you know what what they put on and it's you know it's it it, it it, you, they, you know, Phoebe is is the is the front person, but there's there are producers that are involved. Um, there's a, a woman named Lauren who sat on stage with her with a laptop and an iPad, and 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 went through some audio clips of old podcasts. They they had an entire backdrop of visuals related to the stories that they were telling, and pictures, and um, you know, a couple times videos. It was just so well done I, as a. As just as a podcaster, I appreciated how entertaining and and and, and produced it was. Like like just the nonstop, um, uh, lot, lots of lo- lots of material from from lots of different ways, and you could just tell how um, how polished the the machine was uh, of it. Which is not like and and this is not me saying you and I should do this because I don't think we can. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, not, we could not, not and keep our regular job. Right. Right. But it was it was super cool to just go see and then to see, you know, we've talked about the the draw podcast of you get to know these these people um, and they don't know you, uh, and and then to see the the community of listeners that also are taking this in um, and and kind of look around it was like you expected as Danny was like I wondered who would be here and I was like I think it's gonna be like a bunch of like. Um, college-educated white people, and that's what it was. That's like, mm-hmm. um, but but people. I don't know. It was it was just it was a very cool experience, um, and it was I, I had it. I, I I thought of it like um, listening to to John Roderick talk about just going to shows and watching people perform, and then being a performer in in a, in a similar way where it was like I just it was cool to watch this like watch criminal watch phoebe do her craft and be like oh uh, what would this look like if if food safety talk looked like this right like what 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 would it what would it entail and how you know how much how much information could we share in real time and how much would we have to what what, like and i thought about like the grind of it because i think she did i don't know 15 tour dates and this was the last one and so now she's telling the exact same stories, my guess, right? Like she's got seven stories. She's doing those 15 straight nights. And, mm. and, and, and I, you know, I, I would, I thought about, man, that would be really hard to do, right? Like just if we just talked about farmer's markets and, and did give the same story 15 times in a row. Um, and not, you know, it just, it, it was, it, it was, it gave me a better appreciation of what, you know, what we do and what others, what others do. And it was super cool. So. 
So go, like, if you're listening to podcasts like this one, go see some of these people actually deliver podcasts. Come see us, even. Um, and you'll, you know, it, it'll be a different experience at, at each of them. But it was it was just cool to see a different form of um, uh, of the media. I liked it. Cool. And while we're, while we're talking about podcasts, uh, I, I did I mentioned to you that um, it, it, with with my um, discovery of a great show called Letter Kenny. I don't know if you've heard of it. I haven't heard of that. Um, yeah. uh, but that my my my. Um, uh, 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 media environment has been a very Canadian theme because the other thing that I did, and I'm I'm uh, not completely finished with it. I believe I'm still uh, partway through an episode. No, I am sorry, I am completely finished with it. So uh, I've started thanks to um, the wonderful people at Dubai Friday, which is another podcast that you should be listening to. I've started listening to a podcast called Chapo Trap House, which is a quote unquote or is a quote quoting from Wikipedia now, an American political and humor podcast, um, which is basically run by a bunch of socialists. Um, and uh, the uh, the most recent episode, uh, which is part of their pay the fee that you have to pay for, which they call for some reason, um, which I'm sure that somebody knows, uh, the Gray Wolf uh, podcast feed. Um, the most recent episode is talking about um, uh, basically uh, what Canadian politics, right, and look and, and trying to draw analogies between the different parties in Canada versus the the parties in the United States. Um, and I just found it absolutely uh, fascinating. So I don't know to what do you do to to any extent follow Canadian uh, politics anymore? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I'm, it's a weird situation. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I haven't voted anywhere since I moved to North Carolina. And, and I'm, I, I, I grew up very much involved in politics, local politics. And, um, I, I, uh, when I was in high school, I helped create, um, a school trustee that was a student representative, um, that was an elected uh, position in our, in our school board, um, I got really involved in high school in, in um, uh, educational politics uh, or education policy, I guess, and, and um, working with politicians in, in Ontario um, around safety in schools and teacher cutbacks and all that kind of stuff. And then when I was in um, – when I went to University of Guelph, I, I went down this path of, of minoring in political science with you know, molecular biology as my, as my degree – um, and, and so I, 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 I was, I, I really enjoy the world of political science and, and politics. Like it's, it's something that I'm, that I'm interested in. It's, it's driven me around food safety as well. I like, I like how, how these laws get created and, and now it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating to be some somewhat part of that in, in certain, uh, sense. Um, but but I had a real like philosophical situation when we moved. I might have voted in the first election when uh, after we moved to to North Carolina um, by absentee ballot in in Ontario. I think that mm -hmm. was a provincial election, um, and then it became really clear that I was not going to move back to Ontario like right. at all. And so so I just stopped voting because I I felt like I don't I don't want to be part of decision making for uh, a location that I, that I don't live in and don't have plans living in. And, and, and mm -hmm. that's just been my, like my take. So I, I follow it. I just haven't voted. And then I'm not eligible to vote in the U S uh, cause I'm not a, not a U.S. citizen. So it's, I've gone like for, for something that's really kind of important to me, like voting. Yeah. I haven't done it in 10, in 10 years and, and haven't done it, um, Actively, not from apathy, right? Like, like it's right. it's it's been a it's been a choice, 
Um, so, but I do, but I do stay uh, sort of abreast of, um, provincial politics in, in Ontario and then federal politics. Um, and it is, I mean, it's a totally, totally different system, the parliamentary system, uh, um, compared to, to the, to the U S system and, and how the parties operate. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's akin to the to UK politics, um, and, and procedure, uh, where, where you don't, you, you know, I've never voted for a prime minister cause that's not what a, you know, what a parliamentary, uh, the, a democracy looks like you vote for your right. local official and, and the leader of that party becomes the, the, you know, the leader, the prime minister or the premier. Um, right. Uh, you right. Know. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's my, so that, oh, that's interesting. So I, and, and I can, I guess, well, obviously you, you, you can't vote in the U S right. So right. that's not, not legally. Don't do that. Don't, please, well. yeah, don't. And people, I hear people get arrested for that kind of stuff. So don't right, Especially now. I, I hear, I hear it's, uh, I hear it's uh, highly over overestimated. I hear it doesn't really happen. Uh, <laughs> Exactly, uh, but um, but but on the other hand, I I mean on the on the so on the one hand I would say well you should you have a why are you throwing away your right to vote on the other hand ethically I can see why you wouldn't want to exercise your right to vote in a place where like it's not fair to the people that actually do live there right. if you're but but I yeah I don't know that's my I, yeah I, I, yeah I, if I was in a similar situation I'm not sure what I would do. And and that was like that, that. I mean, you you categorized it exactly. Like I don't, I don't feel like it's um, my place to make decisions on a place that that I really. Do. I mean, I have a connection to by citizenship and by birth, but but the politics of Ontario don't affect me at all today, right? Like I, it doesn't impact what what my job is, where you know, and and, and I don't have a plan. And that could change tomorrow, and I may regret it. But I don't have a plan on on returning, so so it's not like, oh, well, if we if we go back when when I retire, I I don't I don't see myself doing that. Um, and so yeah, it's it's like for me, it's it's that ethical piece because because the right of voting is so important. I I, I decide not to do it, right? I, I, if that makes sense. Right. Well, but are you on a path to U.S. citizenship? Yeah. Yeah. So so that, that's another eventually. reason. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so that's, you know, that, that at some point here and, and hopefully, hopefully in the next, uh, uh, hopefully in 2020, uh, I'll be able to, uh, to vote, um, here in the, in the U S. Um, and then, and then we're, you know, then I'm, then I'm back to, um, to, you know, to this weird, you know, outside of my gray area of like, you know, choosing not to vote. Um, but then in the last federal election, uh, I, I, and I could be totally wrong on this, but I, I don't think I was even eligible to vote in Canada because I lived outside of the country for so long. Oh, and, so you are, you are literally a man without a country. Yeah. And, and now that, that right has been restored by the current federal government, but, but on, you know, as, as things happen in politics and gerrymandering and, you know, the, it made sense for the previous, uh, government to not have expats um, mm. vote because that might they might lose their power and position. Um, huh? That, do you think that's right, Ben? Do you think? <laughs> well, well done. No, I don't. Um, but welcome to yeah. uh, Pol- politics, politics safety, safety podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So so it is. Uh, it's something that I um, I guess that I kind of follow. That was a deep, deep dive in the middle of a food safety talk and yeah. politics, but that was good. 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 So anyway, uh, check out criminal, uh, check out Chapo. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
I listen to episode 18 of our podcast, uh, Bunkum, where we talk about uh, what it might look like if you're making meth in the trunk of your car. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully you don't get arrested for that. Um, okay, so I got a couple of quick hits, and, sure. then, and then we got then we got a bunch of feedback. Um, yep. So the first one is, uh, Don, we have a Wegmans in Raleigh. And and I know this is not a big deal for you because you've got Wegmans all over New Jersey, yeah. Uh, but this this Wegmans, according to the Raleigh News and Observer, broke all kinds of uh, records. Um, and so people uh, three. I thought you were going to say they broke all kinds of rules and they oh, were in no. trouble. No, they're in, they're not in trouble. Um, three thousand people lined up outside of the Wegmans. To, oh my gosh! To get to be uh, as it opened. Uh, at 6.45 a.m., uh, I think it was last Sunday morning. <laughs> Isn't that insane? <sighs> uh, well, having been to Wegmans and having experienced the, um, you know, I'm, we're used to it now because we can go to a Wegmans anytime we like. We don't have to stand in line. Um, and we specifically go when it's not busy. But I, I, having been to a Wegmans, I could understand that people would want to stand in line. It's a pretty good shopping experience. It is. I went yesterday. <laughs> I did not stand in line. Uh, but Wegmans reported that um, on the opening day, so I think this was whatever September 30th or something, um, 30,000 people came through the store that day. Yeah, wow. And, and bought like, you know, strawberries and apples um, that you could buy at other stores, but not Wegman's strawberries and apples. Uh, and so the article goes on to say the chain is a cult-like following. This is the first of five uh, in the Triangle, which is where we live. Um, and uh, and I went yesterday and and took in the Wegman's experience, and I, I really enjoyed it. It is definitely a grocery store that I want to shop at. Um, it's the where this location is. It's not super convenient to our house, but it is close to one of the hockey arenas that I'm at twice a week. Um, so I think we'll be we'll be there. And and the the, the draw is the um, it was the hot bar, right? Like mm. that's that's the that's the thing that that it seems to be um, differentiating Wegmans uh, in our in our market. And so uh, I took a little tour around the hot bar. Um, all the, from food safety content, uh, Don. I'm happy to report, uh, hot food seemed like they were hot. Uh, cold food seemed cold. Were they, were they piping hot? They were piping. They were steaming hot, Don. It was. Uh, I, I did not whip out my thermometer. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. But they seemed hot, and they seemed cold. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. So anyway, Wegmans. Wegmans is here, and it was there's there's a lot of a lot of people excited about that in in North Carolina, and it seems like a very nice store. And and I think it is one of the places that um, if and I did not go do this, but I think if I chose to purchase irradiated ground beef, I could buy it at Wegmans. I believe. You could. Um, so I, I think I will uh, I will do that. Um, all right. The other thing I had for you before we get into feedback is a question for you. Mm -hmm. Sure. And uh, uh, a couple of people. I talked to one person, and I won't. I will protect all of the uh, the innocence on this. But let's call let's call this individual Deep Thermometer. Deep Thermometer um, works for a, a, a let's say a service provider that provides thermometers. Okay, and they have a client who is a, uh, a food retailer that is in the um, convenience uh, food convenience store uh, space, okay. like okay. Um, like like a, let's say like a gas station. Yeah, C stores we call them. C stores. Yeah, it's, it, they're in the C store space. Um, they the uh, deep thermometer got a question from from said client. And they were um, – they're looking to do two things, create standard operating procedures for their their C-stores about using a thermometer. And this is a, a C-store that would be regulated underneath uh, under the food code. 
and they want to do some validation of their monitoring processes. And, and the question that came to me was, Don, well, it didn't start that way. It started Ben. <laughs> that would be a little weird. It would be weird. And I said, well, you have the wrong number. No, they said, uh, uh, do you, uh, they asked if I was aware of any published documentation, literature um, about specific systematic ways to take, thermo- take temperatures uh, for in, in these situations. And so, so I'm going to, um, so, so are you aware of any, you're, you, you, I would put you up there with, um, you, you know, someone might call you Dr. Thermometer, um, some, not me, but someone else. Cause you do a lot of thermometer work, uh, and temperature work. <laughs> um, but, but do you know, like, and so the, the question being, okay, I'm going to make, we're, we're going to make taco meat. We're going to make meatballs. We're going to hold them at specific temperatures. We want to make sure that we're, um, w- for, Lots of different reasons we're really systematic about how we tell people to take the temperature of it, not just, hey, these foods need to be held at um, above 135 degrees, but in a, in a meatball, we want you to take the temperature like this. We want you to take the temperature of 14 meatballs, and we want you to insert the the th- the probe, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, like 10 millimeters in, inside or whatever. But are you aware of anything out there that that tells – sea store folks and others how to use thermometers and i know that sounds really like obvious but do you know of anything i i don't know of anything off the top of my head and and you know and it makes me think like we collect a ton of food measurements every week when we go out and we inspect the university dining halls but i've never trained my students on how to take a temperature measurement and so i don't know what they're doing right (laughs) yes but, but here's the thing here's the thing i also know that a lot of times things are out of temperature control, right? And so really what I'm more interested in is I'm really interested in a lot in, in more measurements rather than fewer, more tightly controlled, better measurements, because because that's going to I think that's going to give me a better picture of what's going on. Now, that said, I realize and, and I know that there's stuff around uh, on like like imagine soup on a hot bar. And, you know, I did some work on this because there was some interest about um, risk assessment for hot holding. And I know that there's evaporative cooling. There's some FDA documents out there that show that different foods have a different level of evaporative cooling by evaporative cooling. So imagine a large container of hot food. Um, the, the, on the bottom, the heat is being applied from the holding environment. Um, uh, it's going to be hot through the middle. And then at the, t- the topmost layer, because water is evaporating, uh, that actually cools the topmost layer. And so if you take a thermo, a thermo uh, a probe thermometer and you, you, you stick it all the way into the middle or you, certainly what you don't want to do is stick it all the way to the bottom where it's contacting right, right. The, the, the hot, where it's actually, the metal is actually hot. So you probably want to put it somewhere in the middle. If you put it into the, the top half inch or just, just barely skim the surface, um, that's going to give a different measurement than the mass. Now, then the question is, okay, so if I can go walk up to that, do I stir the whole thing and then, and then take a measurement? Um, you know, so all, all of that becomes, really, really complicated and, and, and maybe not necessarily meaningful. I would rather come back to my earlier statement, which is maybe just a justification for my lack of training my students, um, is I would rather just take a whole lot of measurements by whatever means. And then let's, let's look for, look at that big picture as a, as a measure of gross issues versus, and and also I know from a, from a risk perspective, I know that, so something that is at 40, is in compliance with the code. Something that is at 42 is out of compliance with the code. But guess what, Ben? At both of those temperatures, listeria is growing. Right, right. right. And so 
I, I'm more able to I, rather than argue about the specific temperatures or the specific methods, I'd rather take a, a step back and say, big picture, what are we doing to, to overall manage manage that risk? But that said, I suspect having asked me this question, you're going to give me your answer. Well, I'm going to I'm going to give you <laughs> kind of an I, answer, an answer, yeah, and and how I approach it. I, I think the answer is no. There isn't there isn't anything that I could find out there. Even trying really? to search through. Um, it, uh, um, Pete Snyder's website. And, and again, I was looking at this from the regulatory perspective. And so what I just sent you or just put in the, um, in our uh, podcast Dropbox is what the food code says about it. Uh, and, okay. and, and this is, so I was like, okay, well, let me, let's start there. And, and what it, uh, what the food well, code. Yeah. And so it's funny that you say that because literally, as you were saying that I was going, I'm I was like, <laughs> I am sure that FDA has a method for taking temperatures. Right. I was on my, on my way to look for what it is that you just sent me. So, right. And so, so, so what they say, um, it, okay. Where is it here? Uh, okay. So uh, it, this is on page – it's in Annex 5, Conducting Risk-Based Inspections. This is where I could find it. A, and it was uh, guidance on assessing cooking temperatures. And, again, this is guidance to um, environmental health specialists who are going to do it. And so I started there and thinking, well, if anybody is going to be systematic about this, we have to have some sort of standardization of it. And in the um, uh, second – I guess the you know, paragraph at the bottom of this page, and we'll link to this, maybe a screenshot of this on, on show notes. It says inspectors should take internal temperature of products using a thermocouple or thermistor with a probe suitable for product thickness. That's pretty loosey goosey, right? Doesn't mm-hmm. tell. Uh, next sentence: A thin diameter probe should be used for temperature measurements of hamburger patties and fish fillets. Alternatively, although less desirable, an inspector may use a suitable calibrated bimetallic um, stem for checking cooking temperatures of thick foods. Infrared thermometers are inappropriate for measuring internal cooking temperatures. The paragraph above that is where I get into, or where not I get, where the food cook gets into it, and they say. The correct temperature measuring device and technique are essential in accurate determining temperatures of TCS foods. Uh huh. This is the the extent of the guidance that I could find, and this is why we do it on the podcast because someone else may know more about this, and there's maybe mm-hmm. a secret FDA document. But it just says the geometric center, center, the thickest part of a product, are the points of measurement of product temperature, particularly when measuring critical limits for cooking. That's different from what we do in cooling, right? Like, are we really looking at the geometric center of of a pot? Um, and it's definitely not the thickest part because it's not, you know, it's a liquid and this is all I could find. So, so it, I, I agree with you from a, uh, from a risk based perspective, it probably doesn't matter or it doesn't, it matters little like there, there, there are likely differences, um, that may not be significant in, in a public health standpoint, but, but what, where this question I think was coming from is we want to follow exactly how the food code tells us how to take a temperature. And all the food code says is, you know, make sure you, you, you look for internal temperature in the geometric center or thickest part of the product. And that all sounds good when I'm talking about a chicken breast, but what do I do when it's, when it's taco meat? Because explicitly the, you know, this guidance says, um, Infrared thermometers are inappropriate for measuring internal cooking temperatures. I agree with the way that that's stated. I think infrared thermometers have a place in measuring taco meat um, in in that situation. So 
so anyway, so, that, so if, yeah. if I had to if I had to measure taco meat, well, geez, you know, if yeah, I mean, I guess if I had to measure taco meat, I I would I would try to to, to do the geometric center of the pot, but. It depends on how the taco meat is being cooked, right? I would want to make sure that it's stirred so that there's hot, the hot spots and cold spots are equalized. Right, right. I, uh, if, I don't know if a taco meat. Maybe I'm checking a couple of places. Again, it comes down to right. Well, yes. exactly. How yep. many? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. yeah so, and, and I, you know, and, and we and I've gotten into this a little bit with respect to a large food service chain whose name you might recognize. Um, when they needed to validate cooking directions for their their grills, right, yep, for burgers. Yep. It's like, well, how do we validate that a grill or that a particular operation is achieving the necessary temperatures? And, well, we're going to collect so many samples and we're going to do it in this way and we're going to analyze it using these statistics. And it all sounds very, very good and it's all very complicated and very sciencey, but you know, ultimately, is there another way that would also be just as good? Yeah, sure. There's not like one right way. There's probably a lot of wrong ways. Right, right, right. But but yeah, what's the what's the number of temperatures that you would want to measure taco meat at? Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't can, know. I, for sure, I could tell you some ways that are wrong. But I, but if you gave me like is is three temperatures enough? Is five temperatures? <laughs> right, right. So I, yeah, you're hitting. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. and th- this is one where. Where uh, the the more that I spent about two hours looking for stuff on on Friday this week or Friday last week because this question came in and I just couldn't find anything more specific than than this which is a bit wishy washy and I know why but but it's there's nothing out there now I did talk well to and you. well here's the thing and if it if it the reason the reason why it's not out there is that it doesn't need to exist or it's too complicated it couldn't exist it would have to be done on a product by product basis yep, yep, right. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely. And, but and you could come up with best principles, right? I and, mean, yes. geometric center is a good idea. Thickest part of the meat is a good idea. That's oh. all good. Those are all good. And then, and then this is, and you're only interested in cooking, right? You're you're not interested in hot holding or cold holding. Well, and I, I mean, I, I, right? The question was related to cooking, but but as right. I was trying to find information, I thought, oh, let's look at all of those things, right? Like, and it's, and I think it's a, it's a similar. Uh, a similar situation, right? Like, so if I'm looking at hot holding or cold holding, um, on a, on a pan, how many, do, you know, stirring, is that going to, is that stirring will matter, right? Right. Like, yeah. cause depending on what my product is, let's say I got this big pan of mashed potatoes. Well, if there are cold spots in that pan stirring, it's going to, um, take, take those cold spots away. But does that then tell me what does that tell me? And how many times do I need to take the the temperature of it? And wh- and at what at what depth? And all that kind of stuff. So so I'm gonna uh, uh, let me tell you. I, I you weren't the first person I talked to about this, and there was not uh-huh. no. But it was it was because I knew we would talk about it today, and I didn't need to call you right away. But right. I happened to be on the phone with um, friend of the show, and and it's your favorite part of the uh, of the show right now. Well, it's my second favorite part because I think I just heard Gibbs. Uh, first first favorite part of the show is um, there we go. Uh, uh, is uh, John, John Lachansky and Anna Portofat? Anna Portofat, there, yeah. double ding, double ding, and, got and, a Gibbs ding, got a, a Portofat ding. Yeah, so they're and they're also thermometer people. They know yes. they do a lot of cooking studies, and so I asked them this question. I was like, "So you guys do this? Like you actually do the validation?" And and they answered the question in a very similar way. It's like you know, it's it's case by case, and we ha- we sometimes have to develop what we think is the best way to do this. Um, based on the product. And, and so, so John and Anna gave me an example of taco meat where they said, what we do is we create a mound of it. 
so not not thinking that it's it's wet but it's dry um, a little bit so it, so it's not like a you know in a, in some sort of liquid like okay let's create a mound and then very carefully now I'm lowering my temperature probe into this mound some sort of geometric mean into a in, into a little little stack of taco meat um, and 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 so that's that's one you know like like you said there's, there's some guiding principles that's one way to um, one way to do that now they're. We, we talked about infrared and they're like, wow, that, you know, that might give us very similar data. And that's what um, we had talked a little bit about this uh, a while ago. But um, Ian Young um, uh, at Ryerson University looked at, uh, at some infrared versus internal temperature and hot holding of chicken nuggets and showed a lot, you know, really, really good correlation. Say, oh, you know, maybe infrared is, is good enough for these type of products in hot holding. Well, right, and I would say, yeah, on, you would need to validate that on a product by yep. product, case by case basis, right? Like, so for example, um, yeah, for taco meat, you know, and here's the correlation, right? You have a calibration curve. Like, here's the right. internal temperature, here's the infrared surface temperature. Yeah, and under these conditions, where under these, you yep. do stir, you don't stir, yeah, all that, yeah. So, I and and what the beauty of this question was, it started as there's got to be something that's systematic on how to use a thermometer. And the answer is there isn't for all the reasons that you already said, because because maybe it doesn't matter. Um, maybe it's really hard to do. It's got to be case by case. There are lots of ifs and, and assumptions and, and buts. And it's just no one like it's not it doesn't exist. As far as I can tell. And we you know, there are times that that we miss stuff, um, you know, in, 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 when it comes to food safety things. So there maybe there is something out there. I just couldn't find it. Um, no, I, it sounds like you did a pretty good job and it, it's probably not out there again. There are, there's rec there's certainly, there's a lot of like the document that you sent to me that's got good advice in it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's not complete. Right. Right. And, I yes. mean, and, and I don't know how it could ever be complete. Right. Like th there's probably, if you gave me an example of a bunch of examples and a bunch and, or showed me photos, right. Like, well, let's think about your, let's think about your, um, the work that you did with the, uh, consumer education on meat thermometers, right. Tip sensitive digital yep. from the side. Right. 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 And, and you got a, you've got a little graphic for that. So you could come up with best practices. Um, and you could certainly say these are not best practices. Right. Um, but but yeah, I, I don't yeah I don't think the document you're looking for exists. Um, but you could probably begin to put something together that would be an example of what are the good things and what are the bad things. Right, right, right. Well, and um, we're I think there was some spot here. Okay, I'm gonna find a paper from 2001 on. Uh, we'll link to this in in show notes. Uh, Post cooking temperature changes in beef patties, and even here. If you look systematically at a patty, you may get differences of degrees, you know, and not, not, you know, not un, uh, degrees that like it matters, you know, maybe up to five or 10 degree differences within that patty. If you looked at it in quadrants, like from between quadrant one and quadrant three. And so, so even there, like, okay, we, it's got to get to 160 degrees, but maybe one part gets to 160. Am I good? Right? Like, did I check, I checked the box, but did all of it get to 160? And how would I even know that? And what's the systematic way to do that? And I think that's what you're getting into with your, um, with, with the cooking, uh, validation for, for grilling. It's, there's lots of variability and it's case by case. Right. <sighs> so anyway, this is the, the beauty of why we do the podcast is to talk through this. Cause it's, I, yeah, I, I want to, 
I want to help answer the question, and and I think like there we could write it right. Like we could all, everything we just said could be like here are the things you need to keep in in mind when developing and training people how to use a thermometer. I'm so much more cognizant of this now after um, doing uh, a study on chicken washing and not and and not like having an assumption on what chicken washing is and then watching people do it and being like, Oh, how I assumed you're going to wash that is totally not what you do. And, and, you know, taking thermometer, taking the temperature, it seems like it's, it's all really straightforward, but I, but I bet if we, we really got into, um, food service temperature taking, there'd be a lot of variability on how people do this. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, so speaking of FDA and the food code and the annex, it's really hard to just find a, Google and find the food code annex. Oh, it's in the food code. So oh, okay. It's it's so, like if you download the 2017 code from the uh, from FDA's website, it's, it's 700. Got the annex. Yeah, it's 767 oh, okay. pages. All right. Well, sorry. So we'll just link to the food code 2017 yep. main web page, and then people can can download it if they want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go go check out Annex Five and yep. page 602. I think it was or 604. Yep. 606. 606. Um, so <laughs> six oh five, six oh six, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Uh, okay, cool. So, so there's, so there's that. Um, and then should we let's dive into some feedback? What do you, what do you got? What do you got going on? You got, you got time, right? Uh, yeah, I'm. I, uh, I have to. I have not. Uh, I have not. Oh, my, my message didn't send to you. No, um, I, I know. I'm, I'm. I've been waiting. I've been stalling this whole time. I'm so, I just I'm so sorry. Time. I'm so sorry. Um, I, <laughs> I uh, my, uh, I got, I got nothing else going on except I have not had lunch yet. So, Me but, uh, but I'm good. Oh, so speaking of, okay, this is a little bit of follow up, and I can't remember who sent this to me, but someone tweeted at me some ideas about because I've talked about like cutting down on carbs uh, when I <clears> when I saw you in the last episode, um, and. Uh, I uh, someone sent me a link to um, uh, some gluten free pancakes and okay. and I I can't remember I won't be able to find it as I talk about it but I purchased it and I haven't made it yet but thank well, you here, to the, here's the thing yeah. Ben gluten free pancakes are not low carb necessarily right right They're just right. gluten free I think these were low carb gluten free pancakes oh, oh yeah my goodness yeah it was all it was all the good things um, but speaking of lunch. One thing that I'm starting to practice, and who, who knows if, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get some, I'll get some feedback on this. I'm doing a little intermittent fasting. Oh. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm not eating anything after 8 p.m. And then I don't eat anything again until uh, 11 a.m. the next day. And, well, and yeah, then not eating after 8 p.m. would certainly help me because that's my major snacking time. It's me bad. Me too. <laughs> it is. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm on the I'm on the intermittent intermittent fasting. And when you look at like literature on this, there are so many different ways that people are doing intermittent fasting. Some people are like not eating for 24 hours straight, and they're doing that three times a week, and then eating all of their calories in in four days of the week. And yeah, I couldn't quite commit to that, so I went with this uh, um, what 15 hour uh, fast, something like that. So cool. Yeah, so I'm trying that, so I can get my body into ketosis. <laughs> There you go. Um, so, all right, we have there is a ton of um, uh, follow up. Shall we start with uh, where do you want to start? Oh gosh, well, I feel like we should probably start with the like first in, first out. Okay, <laughs> so we should Pop start the with stack. all this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> let's use that incorrect again. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, this one uh, comes from uh, Deep Book. Um, and, uh, it is, uh, related to, uh, serving food on books. So, 
Uh, in case this was make for make for good podcast music, here's an interesting choice of serving dish from the finale of the TV show Master Chef. Nick DiGiovanni plated sea bass and squid ink on an open book. He made three plates of this dish, one for each judge. There is a lot uh, that is fair game for speculation here. No details were given about the origins of the book. Were they pre-owned, purchased from a big box store, custom print procured directly from their printer, or the thought process behind selecting appropriate type of book for plating food? I would think that factors like page thickness, type of paper, and possibly the type of ink used would be uh, important factors from quality and, t- and taste standpoint. Most importantly, to make sure that the moisture from the bass itself and the squid ink did not turn the paper to mush and accidentally end up on the judge's forks. I would be interested in hearing what you think the potential food safety risks or concerns would be, if any, when serving for food on books. Uh, bonus tidbit, this particular content- contestant apparently spent a lot of time researching how to recreate an old book flavor uh, f- for this dish, which was made, yeah. yeah, it sounds great, right, by using wheatgrass, bourbon, hickory, and a couple of other things, uh, the end quote, yum. Uh, while I am going out on a limb and guesses low food safety risk, uh, it is a bold and memorable choice. I remember you discussing the unusual <laughs> servingware before. Uh, we want plates, which is one of the greatest uh, websites, um, and this would certainly fall into that category. Um, so, so books. Um, you know, what, what do you think? What do you think, Don? What, what would you see the risk being? Uh, well, it's not a cleanable surface, um, but I think that it's low risk. Um, and there's, yeah, there's probably going to be a flavor. I mean, if, if it's a musty book that you pulled off a bookshelf, I don't want to, I don't want to eat that. I mean, that just sounds gross. I, yeah. yeah. So mostly it's a gross thing. Um, yeah. So I, but I, I don't want that. I want plates. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> we want plates. Um, so I, I, I went down the path of trying to think what would be the you know most likely pathogen and i'm i'm, I'm going to err on on this is a norovirus issue right like the, if, okay. if you're going to get sick from something from a book it's going to be norovirus but i think about how people handle books and i'm handling a book currently right now in my hand um and in this book you can hear maybe hear some little folio of, of pages in this book i'm not really touching the middle part where i would serve food right like i don't i don't touch pages so much so if i was ill if i had norovirus um on my hands i'm really only likely to touch the edges of the of that book because that's how that's how a book works um now let's say the book was open and someone vomited close by is there a chance that that a norovirus particle might end up on the part of the book you know the book page if it's open to the right page where i'm going to serve it possible but i think it's super unlikely super super low risk i think i think i'm i would if i'm going to eat off a book i would rather eat off a page than the than the like corners of the page or the you know the stack of pages themselves where there might be a lot of hand touching oh see all right so it helps if you actually look at the um uh the disgusting picture from the website um i was i was imagining the cover of the book. No, no, these are the pages. Yeah, it's the pages. It's, it's it's disgusting. It's stupid. It's but it's low risk. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. And um, I think the decision. I didn't watch this episode, but my guess is you're going to use squid ink, right? And books are printed with ink. So let's get a bunch. You know, the, there's a picture from Instagram or from Twitter at the bottom of the of this article um, that shows like just ink splatter all over a page. And I I get it. I mean. Barely, but I get the reference. <laughs> yeah, I I just trying too hard. Hey, so so when I when I look in our uh, Dropbox, yep. I see 
be some things that are below the one that you oh, no. yeah, you're called right. out. There's a okay. whole bunch. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I well, and I, and I, the problem is I have not always been real super good about um, making sure that we 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 keep this current. So I've got one um, from August fourteenth. Uh, yeah. Okay. See, um, I, I only started so, things. I looked at dates. And I thought, okay. oh, we're going back to September 27th because that was the last time that we talked. But yeah, yeah, you're right. There's a bunch from August here. Yeah. So, so here's 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 one from from August, and this is a multiple iteration. And I, have we have we talked at all about um, um, food grade gum Arabic on the show? No. Okay. So this so apologies to uh, listener. You can read my message, but not my name. Deep gum. Deep gum. Um, uh, so, so deep gum writes, um, I was disappointed to miss your Richard fingers, uh, Seattle show last week. So this is old. Um, uh, it's too far. <laughs> so he's, he starts, he starts by complaining that our Seattle show is not really in Seattle. Basically. Right. Thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, deep gum. Um, deep so geography. Yeah, yeah, right. Am I right? Um, so uh, he says, recently I was asked to bring a big batch cocktail to a party. The cocktail I chose to make required pineapple gum syrup. If I'd planned ahead, I could have purchased pre-made gum syrup, but I couldn't find it on short notice, so I decided to make some. Obviously, obviously, Ben, this meant buying gum Arabic. Um, and he adds parenthetically, I have a, a habit of going way overboard, making foods, and drinks for parties, uh, never considered just picking a different cocktail. So I think you're uh, right in our, uh, right in our demographic for this podcast. Um, my trusted source for weird ingredients, um, uh, like this, uh, which is a website, which we have not, I've not heard of before this message, which we will link to is called tenzingmomo.com. And uh, TenzingMomo.com is a new online store stocked of full of, with hundreds of new products. Um, so apparently a real a real a place to go shopping for eclectic uh, eclectic things. Uh, so uh, Tenzing Momo was sold out. Um, they directed me. Oh, I guess this must be a local a local shop. Um, uh, they directed him to another shop uh, which I had no experience uh, but had it in stock. I scooped up some resinous chunks from the bulk bin into a little baggie, headed to the register, and then realized. I didn't know anything about this stuff. And it occurred to me to ask the clerk if there was any difference between food grade and non-food grade gum Arabic. And if so, then was this the former? Uh, she didn't know and couldn't get an answer because the, the, the person who did know was out sick. So then for the next 10 minutes, she, my girlfriend and I all did our own Googling on the subject. <laughs> we, we learned – we learned, apparently, you can learn things on the internet, Ben. Uh, we learned that food-grade gum Arabic was a thing, but not what the differences were between it and other stuff might be, nor what the possible risks could be. She was able to assure me that the gum Arabic they sold me was 100% acacia resin. Armed with that knowledge and encouraged by the fact that this place also stocked a bunch of other things that were pretty clearly meant to be consumed, I decided to assume that it was food grade and proceed. I made the pineapple gum syrup and used it to make a pitcher of Pisco Punch. It was a huge hit and to my knowledge didn't kill anybody. So three questions. Um, how, how irresponsible of me was this? 
Number two, are there any good resources for lay people that would have helped more than just desperate Googling? And number three, how concerned should I be to use the giant jar of apple pineapple gum syrup <laughs> that's now in my fridge since the recipe yielded 10 times more than I needed? So, and I did, we did have a, a little bit of email back and forth uh, with this, with this listener. Um, so, uh, uh, so, how, so let me, let me give my answers and then you can do the same. Um, how irresponsible of me was this? Um, my answer is we don't judge on this podcast. Right. I'll leave it to you to decide. I would say though you could have you could have in in full disclosure um, shared like I don't this was made with gum arabic. I don't know if it was food grade. You can choose to to consume the punch or not if you want. Um, uh, are there any good resources for lay people that would have helped more than just desperate Googling? I, and I, my response is I think he did pretty good under the circumstances. Um, one thing that I will do when I'm trying to find something and I'm just getting a lot of crap um, in Google that doesn't work is I will do the advanced search feature of Google. And so I would type uh, gum Arabic, food grade gum Arabic. But then I would limit the search to um, .gov or to .edu domains um, or, or, again, specifically to, to FDA.gov. Um, and then finally, how concerned should I – and we'll give – we've got a – uh, an FDA, I've got a, a good, a good link that we'll give here in a minute. Um, uh, and then third, uh, how concerned should I be about the giant jar of pineapples, gum syrup? Um, here's the thing. I'm, I wrote back to, to this listener, if you invited me over and I took a sniff and it smelled okay and we mixed it with plenty of, uh, bourbon or vodka or rum, I would have a drink. Uh, that said, it's probably not a, a best practice. Um, and you should decide for yourself. So I was very not helpful in this message from August. Um, I would use it up or discard within a few days. Uh, depending upon what was in the ingredients, it might start to spoil. So, um, well, so Ben, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. So a few, um, I didn't really know what gum Arabic was. So I did a little bit of Googling myself on, on this just to, to get a sense. Um, and here's, here's kind of what I, how, how I tackle this. Um, what I want to know is, um, have we seen any recalls for this, you know, for this product or, or similar products? If, if we have, what were the, are there pathogens a concern? And so kind of like, you know, learn a little bit about gum Arabic um, and think about what the, what it looks like as a, you know, as a gum, as an emulsifier. And I was like, okay, if we are going to see something, I would expect to see like salmonella um, or yes, absolutely right. Right. Top like my list too. Yeah. Low, low water activity. And, and we can put um, pathogenic E. coli in there and listeria. And, and you know, we, we talked to, um, uh, our good friend Linda Harris, who's done a lot of work in in low acid, low moisture, not low acid, low moisture foods. Um, I think those three pathogens kind of go hand in hand in here. But salmonella would be the one that we would see illnesses with um, the most. And so I started googling like, all right, gum arabic uh, and salmonella, and and there's, I, I stumbled across a couple of papers. One on and you know read the title of this but i'm gonna i'll I'll be a little bit um jaded in this so the title is in vitro antimicrobial activity of gum uh, arabic uh prebiotics and against infectious pathogens and this was published in the international journal of pharmacy and pharmaceutical research and the reason why i'm a little bit um weird on this is i think this just reads and is posted kind of like a predatory journal kind of look um but i i I haven't done the second step to to confirm that but in this you know study um looked at 
uh, you know, adding, um, you know, inoculating with specific pathogens and, and it has some, uh, antimicrobial, um, uh, activity. So, but, so that's, that's the first thing is I'm trying to look for, have there been problems of it and uh, you know, related to it in the past? And then the second part of the question really is about, for me, what does food grade gum Arabic look like? And, and yes, I can use it for other things, but, but from a food grade thing, it's, it's that it's produced in a way that is reducing the likelihood that I'm introducing any salmonella into the process. And, and so, um, I, that, that's the part that, that I don't think any Googling is going to help you with. Um, you know, yes, the, it, what it's going to help you say is yes, there's, there's food grade, um, you know, whatever product it is here in, in, you know, gum Arabic, but is the, if this one is, what does that mean? And what, what kind of facility was it made in and are they following best practices? That's the part that, that I don't think you're going to find out through Googling. Um, so I, you know, I feel like you did the best you, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be able to know the answer. I don't think there's a better, um, process uh, for lay individuals just doing what, what you did, um, gets you to a point where, as as there is with anything, if there's not a lot of information, then we have to take some trust that someone is doing it um, correctly and that it was food grade, the, uh, uh, you know, in the first place. But I don't I don't think you can find what that what it means anywhere. Yeah, and so and a couple of links to share. So um, uh, first of all, I, I will we will link to a part of the uh, code or federal regulations uh, which talks about um, what it means for something to be food grade. Um, so uh, if gum arabic in and of itself is what the food the food industry would call grass generally recognized as safe and then we will link to the part of the food the code of federal regulations that talks about that so what this means is that that so gum arabic in and of itself uh, is is not is not dangerous right that doesn't have to go through any uh, food, you know, processing techniques to render it safe, right? It's, you, it's, it, it, it is, it is, you know, it's been used historically in foods prior to some formation of the regulations in this country. So therefore it's, it's okay. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, there's a, a real interesting article from foodsafetytech.com, uh, which basically, uh, has the title is food grade always food safe. Uh, and I think the answer to that is no. So just because right, something right. is food grade doesn't mean that, it, that it's necessarily safe. And I think uh, your idea about uh, salmonella is a good one as well. And then, and then finally, uh, just to, to close the link on the email, um, the listener uh, shared uh, with us a, a show that might appeal to our listeners, uh, which is called the Grox Science Show, uh, which is produced at WHPK um, in at the University of Chicago, and we will link to uh, an episode of that of that podcast um, because uh, uh, it looks like a fun podcast. Absolutely, um, and I sent you a couple of links for. Um, the uh you know the stuff that i talked about and mm -hmm. um if you uh go to uh, beal's list which is always correct but not always updated um you'll find that uh the international journal of pharma professionals research or no so of journal of pharmacy and pharmaceutical research um is uh on the original list of beal's list Ah, okay. Which is, it just read that way, right? Like it just, yeah. You, you'll see. Anyway, we'll link to it because well, it's, and, yeah, and and we should we can talk a little bit about Beal's list too because unfortunately, um, Beal's list is no more. But there, but there are copies of it, and you can you can do some searching on predatory journals, and, and it'll sort of get you where you need to go. Right, so. right, right. 
there's an impact factor and it's open access and it's peer reviewed and there are articles, all that good stuff. This is, you know, this is a question, right? Like all the, I'll checks all those boxes. Yeah. This is a question that comes up quite a bit in the, um, when we teach the retail HACCP class about as, as someone who's at a local health department or a state health department who's assessing HACCP plans and someone puts in an, uh, a reference to an article on why they're making decisions, just the, the sheer um, challenge of, of, okay, first of all, we got to, you know, someone's, someone's got a reference. So we got that far, but being able to know whether this is good science or not, and is it, is it something that someone published in a predatory journal just to, you know, mess with the regulatory system, all that kind of stuff is really, it's really fascinating. It's a challenge. I don't have an answer for it, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and probably, this was published in a predatory journal because somebody at this institution needed a publication and they could get it published. Right. Yep. I mean, that's, that's, and, and here's the thing. It's, it's a, it's a predatory journal and that's a whole problem, but you know, that doesn't mean that this thing doesn't have value. Right. 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 Yep. It, 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 you could read it and you could say, okay, well that, you know, there's, there's uh there's some probably useful information in here. Would I trust the science? No, I would have to read the, the methods and, you know, and, and sort of decide for myself whether it was valid, whether there were any systematic flaws, but it's not, it's not without value. Um, right. Yeah. It's, oh, this, this takes us off on another, the whole idea of uh, scientific publishing and, I can't, you know, even people that don't publish in predatory journals that do good science, like like me, for example, <laughs> um, uh, have I have trouble getting my papers published because you know journals are stupid or reviewers are stupid, right? I got a a message from a f friend about a friend's article uh, saying that uh, the article was not will not be reviewed because it had a thirty six percent match with something else Ooh. that was already on the internet. Uh, but I know the I know the original sender of that article is is a you know not a not a shyster, right? and and so it's probably. Um, it's probably a mismatch, but again, no, no further information. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just that science is kind of a mess right now. It is, it is, but it's oh. still better than anything else. Um, yeah. Oh, by the way, by the way, so yeah. looking at, looking at this particular article, that's from a predatory journal. Um, uh, there is a citation, uh, which comes from a journal entitled, uh, Bailey and Scott's diagnostic Mycnobiology. Mycno. Um, Mycnobiology. So I suspect that's a, probably a typo. That's probably a misspelled word, which, again, is probably a pretty good sign this is not a reputable – just looking at the way it's formatted. Yeah. That's, um, it's just yep. – this was not – This nobody looked at this. No no editor looked at this and, and, and properly set the type. It's just, it's just a PDF that somebody threw on the internet somewhere. Yep. Yep. So anyway, that's – but but like you said, there's there's some value. At least we can see it. Yep. Um, all right. Okay. So there's food grade. Um, here's some, uh, um, let's see. Let's come back to that one. Um, all right. So for the, this is from <laughs> deep Menzies Splainer. <laughs> yes. Who, um, who, who we, we appreciate has sent us uh, a few things in the, in the past. She's, she's uh, gone by, uh, this individual has gone by Deep Flame, Deep Pancake, and, and now Deep Menzies Splinter. So um, here's, the, here's the question. So obviously handling food when you have foodborne illness-related diarrhea is bad. But is it still bad when you have other types of loose stools? Oh, did we talk about this one already? I don't remember. 
For some people, when they menstruate and have a, a day of really incredible bowel movements associated with the progression of cramping to not cramping, usually preceded by a few days of constipation, and apologies if this is, quote, Menzies splaining. Um, and, and two, I'm a bit lactose intolerant, which means I chow down on a nice truffle cheddar instead of cooking myself dinner. The next day will be pretty toilet centric. Um, <laughs> regardless of the root, root, yep. Regardless of the root cause of the squirts show title, um, you should, you shouldn't go to the pool from my understanding because it's more liquidy and then therefore could, could some could leak out and your poop contents don't necessarily play nicely with the children who do swallow pool water. Uh, but is there a food safety aspect for all diarrhea or just a foodborne illness, unknown cause, because unknown could be uh, foodborne illness types. And I'm assuming good hand-washing technique, of course. Uh, I prefer, prefer deep pancake because deep flame uh, kind of sounds like an ex-deep in your past, who you still think about sometimes, and that's a bit weird. Oh, yes, that's very weird. It is true. It's true. Uh, thanks both, and f- uh, feel free to relegate this one to the back burner for a while. Um, and seem as the last one was, was very deep pancake-heavy. Uh, so, so this – I. This is a good question. I don't know if we're the right people to answer this, and and maybe and I didn't I didn't do any any digging on this. I don't know if you're you're aware, but I think the root of this question is is all we know that not all diarrhea is caused by foodborne illness, but is all diarrhea uh, would it increase the risk of transmitting foodborne illness if because you've got a loose you got a bunch of loose stool. And it's less loo- more loose than than hard stool, I guess. You know, and, well, it, it definitely increases the risk of fecal contamination, right? right. But yes. fecal contamination does not equal risk. So I, I guess the and and then we and to to answer the question, we have to say, well, okay, so what is the percentage of the population that are carriers for organisms that make other that would make other people sick? Right. Right. And in those situations this would be an increased risk. But it's 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 gross, but I don't really think it constitutes an increased risk. I yeah, see I, I agree. Um can we skip forward? No. You know what? We're gonna save that one. Okay. <laughs> we're gonna save because there's another there's another question, but we're gonna talk we're gonna talk about it afterwards. Okay. Um okay. So um I'm gonna move I'm gonna move up the stack, move down the stack here. Um, and this is pop, pop the stack. I'm popping stacks. I'm dropping stacks. I'm I'm dropping beats. I'm dropping rhymes. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm basically Kendrick Lamar over here. Uh, that's a he's a he's a hip hop hip hop artist. Uh, uh, all right. So better you're ready for a Donnybrook. I'm I'm ready for a Donnybrook. Do you know I took a picture of Donnybrook Road, which exists <laughs> here in South of Raleigh, just because of Letterkenny. Um, all right. Uh, message. What's, the, um, what's sorry sorry what's the I gotta I gotta get better with these what's the uh, what's the thing uh, uh, where you take off your shirt tarts, tarts off. off tarts, tarts off, off boys <laughs> tarts off boys yeah um, which I always thought growing up that it was tarps off and uh, it's apparently tarts off no it's according to loop.ca it's tarps off oh see I thought they said tarts I thought okay it is yeah tarps off like meaning take take the take your tent take your tent yeah. off yeah. Uh, all right, so here's a, a guest idea, um, and this is from uh, someone who uh, is, uh, which you know, my favorite is, and I won't say the first name, but it is name, first name, second name, last name withheld. Uh, <laughs> yes, last name is last name withheld. Last name withheld. Uh, and so, uh, so this is from uh, from Deep Alton, and the idea for a guest is Alton Brown. 
Um, and so writer writes, uh, I think his kind of geek would mesh with you two fine gentlemen, despite quite being quite informative and funny. Uh, and then uh, nice words about keeping up the podcast. Uh, this is a call to Alton Brown. Really, it's a call to anybody. You want to be a guest on, on Food Safety Talk, let us know. And we'll, we'll tell you when we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> we, we basically take all comers on this one, right? Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but Alton Brown ex- uh, you know, explicitly, if you want to, um, if you're listening and you want to join us on an episode of Food Safety Talk, we'd love to have you. My, yeah. My, so my, my closest connection to Alton Brown is we did have somebody um, who came and took our, uh, I think it was a food, our, our intro to food safety course. It would, or I don't think it was our introduction to food science course, but somebody who worked on his show, um, came and took our, our, our short course, just, I guess, oh, to cool. look for ideas for the show. So nice. And then they, and then they, did they get any, <laughs> did you give them any ideas? I don't know. They were a very nice person. We had a very nice chat. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's a uh, deep stack, another feedback from deep stack. Uh, this is probably more the etiquette around food safety than food safety, but perhaps you'd like to weigh in, and we always like to weigh in. All right, so here's the hypothetical. Don, you're out to dinner with your spouse. You jointly order a salad and pizza to share. The food is delicious. The pizza arrives almost immediately after the salad. Your spouse finds a dead bug a few bites into the salad um, that she's transferred to her plate. There's, there's a broad range of possible responses uh, to this from, from the diners, the servers, and the management. At this point, do you leave? Do you check the rest of your salad for dead bugs? Continue eating if you find none. Um, do you still trust the pizza because at least it's been a very hot oven for 90 seconds? And so that's the hypothetical. The mm-hmm. actual is my wife pointed out this is how Deep Stack, uh, Deep Stack's event was. Um, you know what? Actually, why don't we, let, let, let me tell you the actual in a second. What do you do? Okay. So what do I do? Um, I um, stop eating the salad. I call over the server. Um, I tell the server that there's a bug in the salad. And I point to the bug, right? And I see what they do. Now, Ah. right, uh, what I think they should do is I think they should immediately remove the salad. They should refund me the salad. They should ask me... If I want a replacement salad, which I would politely decline, um, and then they, if they ask me, would you like something else instead of the salad, I might pick something that would be lower risk, right? Um, uh, and, and certainly, if I was the restaurant, um, I might consider comping the whole meal. Um, I Definitely, they're not paying for the salad, right? right. And I might bring them... Uh, a, a drink, you know, or, or if, or that might be irresponsible cause that might, you know, make them be drunk drivers, but, but, uh, or bring them a free dessert or give them a coupon for, you know, uh, a free meal, like do, do something to win those customers back. So, um, yeah, I like, I like it. Okay. So, so this question came in at almost the exact time that I was doing an interview about rodent hair and poop and insect parts, um, for CNN. And so we'll link to this um, to this article in um, in show notes. I, so I like your approach, and I'll tell you how I how I would handle this. I would say, hey, um, well, sometimes I will say nothing, and I just won't eat the salad. And and sometimes I will say, hey, there's something in my salad, and there might be bug parts or bugs in other people's salads, so you might want to um, deal with this. 
Uh, and uh, I, I would not – I'm with you. I would not order another salad if they brought me – they said, well, would you like something else? Um, I might just say, no, I'm, I'm good. I would have no concerns about the pizza. Yep, same. Uh, uh, what, you know, whatsoever. And, and so anyway, the, the article that like literally the, this came in while I was doing the, the interview about um, – uh, the article is entitled Bugs, Rodent, Hair, and Poop. How much is legally allowed in the food you eat every day? And this was uh, – it, it was written by a journalist, uh, Sandy Lamott at CNN. And she mentioned – I will paraphrase this a bit. She goes, yeah, we're doing a few like clickbait kind of stories. <laughs> kind of like that. And, I, again, I won't – it's not exactly what she said, but it was kind of like that. And, in fact, um, so this posted on Friday, and then, Friday, October 4th. And then today there was a Another um, uh, food safety um, uh, story by Sandy and CNN, which is the the germiest uh, place in your home and the best way to combat those microbes. And who do you think they interviewed for that? Dr. Uh, Chuck Erba. Yep, yep. A lot of Chuck, a lot of Chuck. So uh, anyway, it was a little, little click, clickbaity. But I got a really nice message from a uh, listener to the show who I won't out, um, a friend, friend of our, ours, who said, uh, really appreciated the way that you um, sort of steered uh, away from the yuck factor aspect of this. It's gross, but then brought it back to, yeah, but what I'm really worried about are the things that make people sick, and those are things like cross-contamination and hand-washing, and so that made it actually into the, um, into the paper. Um, or not paper into the into the article. So uh, my quote was: cross contamination from raw food, under cooking food, hand washing, and spreading germs from raw food. Those are the things that contribute to the more than forty eight million cases of foodborne illness we have in the year. And that was the end of like that. That was the end of the article. So it's Perfect. like you know, leave them, leave them uh, with the with the better, be, yeah, the better information about risks. Uh, but anyway, so. Um, so going back to to Deep Stack, here is the actual response that Deep Stack had. My wife pointed out to the, the bug to the waiter and asked him to take the plate away. She did not make a scene. The waiter did not offer to replace the salad and didn't take the common salad plate or my plate away. He did give her a clean dish. I shoveled the salad on my plate back into the common plate. We ate the pizza. Like I said, the food is delicious. The waiter presented the check to us, having charged us for the salad, which we clearly had not eaten. My wife protested and he said he would have to talk to the owner at the register to change it. The waiter had not reported the bugs of the owners. So the owners, a man and woman team, interrogated us for our experience. Had we shown it to the waiter? Had the waiter offered us a replacement? The biggest kicker was, quote, I'll make you another salad to take home. We declined. And the owner, who hadn't seen the bill told the one at the register to take uh, off the $2. This wasn't a side salad. It was a $12 um, salad. He begrudgingly and someone apologetically took it off the bill. Um, and so, you know, the, the question from Deep Stack is any recommendations the next time we encounter this? Um, in this case, it, it matters. I did not see the bug. It had legs and wings, and my wife was too squeaked, squicked out to investigate further. So yeah, I, and my, and, my own, and and so and then he concludes by asking, "Do you have any recommendations for the next time we encounter yeah. this?" Um, my, my advice, which which you know, again in hindsight was is great advice, but I'm not sure I would do it necessarily at the, on the moment. Is you, you, we all have cameras now these days, yeah. so we have phones, right? And I would just take a picture of the of the bug in situ in the salad, um, you know, and and I mean, you know, there's there's just there's no reason for the restaurant not to handle this appropriately, right? Um, 
I mean, it sounds like they kind of they kind of screwed up. Uh, I, I wouldn't make a scene, but I would absolutely insist on on not paying for the salad. And if they insisted on me paying for the salad, I'm like, that's fine. Uh, I'm not coming back here. And this picture is going on social media, right? Like, right. Because I want to let if you're not willing to make it good for me, then I have no assurance you're going to not make this good for other people. And in good conscience, I can't recommend that uh, somebody would come, would come here. So. Right, right, right. Yep, exactly. Yep. And and that's not sort of the best way to handle f- um, food safety risks or contamination risk, right? Like yep. this, yep. yeah, that I, I really, um, yeah, just, um, confidence in, in, in the operator and confidence in the staff on, you know, not managing a bug risk, but now how, how, let's take all the other things that they do into question as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, I've had, I've had this happen a couple times. I, I don't remember the restaurants. I think they were probably like fast food chains. And so once I did have a bug in my salad and uh, they said, nope, no problem. We'll take it back. Um, do you want another salad? No, thanks. You want a refund? Yes. And then, and it was good. Um, and then the other time it was not a uh, bug, but it was like a piece of plastic that had somehow gotten in with the salad. And uh, I pointed it out and they're like, yeah, that, that shouldn't happen. You know, t- t- <laughs> yeah, t- took care of it. Um, and then, and then I think with the with the plastic one, I might have even said, "Look, you know, depending on how you make your salads, there might be other pieces of plastic out there. So you should you should go right. and investigate that." And the response from the person was, "Yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're right. We'll we'll, we'll go investigate." Right? I didn't like and follow them back in the kitchen to see what they did, but but they they had the right response in both in both those cases. That was the right response. Like, oh yes, this is a problem. We are going to take care of it. Um, the one the one um, uh, situation where I had a defective food product in a restaurant that, that was not good was we ordered, this was after the meal. It was a dessert and it was a little, this makes me nauseous even talking about it. It was like a chocolate covered thing. Um, and I was, but it was a, it was a fancy restaurant. So the lighting was low. And as I was biting into it, it just tasted moldy Mm. and it turns out the bottom was molded and I reported it to the, to the server and they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take that off. Um, and I'm like, yeah, but there might, the other ones might be bad. It's like, oh no, we checked the other ones. They're, they're all fine. It's like, okay, whatever. I mean, just, just not, was not, was not handled well. Uh, still again, makes me, you know, it turns my stomach to think about it. Um, again, food safety risk, probably minimal and probably not uh, toxin producing mold, but, but again, that's just a, and that's right at the end of the meal. Right. And, and right. that's not, it's not the, what the impression you want to leave your customers. And I don't remember, I don't, I don't think the meal was comped. But anyway, that would have been the best practice is like, oh, you had a horrible experience. But you know what? Your whole meal is on us. I, you know, we, we ended the meal badly. Um, we've, we've thrown away everything that's back there, all, all this product. We're going to investigate our practices. We're going to find out why it happened or do our best to make sure it doesn't happen again. And by the way, you're not paying for your meal tonight. And, and if they were really being generous, they'd be like, yeah, no, but everybody here eats for free tonight. Our, our, our mistake. Right, right, right. right. I mean, I, I understand it's not always going to happen, but. Right, right, right. Well, and, and also maybe they have a history of like people saying that they found bugs, right? So they 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 feel like they're being taken advantage of, but really maybe they just have a whole bunch of bugs in their food. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So uh, there, there's a there's a piece of feedback in here that you said that we should talk about, and I want to know how you want to how you want to talk about this one. Um, and so it is entitled uh, something related to five second rule. So take a look at that one. Right. Um, yeah. So, so this is, this is interesting. So, uh, let's, yeah, let's, how should we talk about this? Um, how, um, 
how do you want to be remembered? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, is it, this is a question for me. On yeah, how it's I for want... you. For you. Okay. You there. You there. Yeah, Mr. You, Chapman, you, Dr. Yeah, Professor th- Chapman. Professor Chapman. How do you want to be remembered? Uh, so, so I want to. I want to be remembered, uh, Don, uh, as as someone who does um, progressive work in the area of food safety and uh, contributes to the knowledge base, uh, and also. Um, does, does a decent job, um, training students. So they are also, uh, connecting, uh, social sciences with, uh, with microbiology, um, and moving forward to answer questions. That's, that's how I want to be remembered like that. And I want to be remembered as a good science communicator. Would, would you, would you be okay with being remembered as the guy who almost got arrested trying to do food safety? Oh yeah, I would. Yeah. 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 Cause that's all part of the story, right? Like that's. It, Yes. It, and it is. Yeah. And in a couple of, you know, I, I, that's part of the reason why I like to tell the stories on here about things that have happened. Um, <laughs> exactly. We're making a literal recording. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I want people to, um, to, I want to pull back the curtain on what, what people like you and I do every day. And sometimes that involves showing up in a, in a parking lot and having the police come because we didn't ask permission to, uh, to have some secret shoppers, uh, start in their parking lot. Or, um, I, you know, as much as I don't want to, um, create any undue stress in any of our participants, I do want to tell the story of how I, I did that on, you know, uh, unbeknownst to me and made me think about how I do things that re- you know resulted in someone, uh, calling the police, uh, and, or asking me to call the police on myself, uh, for fraud. Uh, see, uh, episode, we'll link it in the show notes, um, where I gave somebody Ebola, but I didn't, but yeah, that's, well, I mean, that's, and, and also, and also yeah. almost getting arrested in the, in a parking lot of uh, a store. And a park, exactly. <laughs> and rest in the parking lot of store. Yeah. So, so yeah, I want to, yeah, I want to be, I want to be known for those. I want, I, I, I the, not everything that we do is, is perfect. And I like sharing the warts. Right. So. I don't want to out this person. Right. Uh, this was a message that came to me. Uh, it was started by Carl Custer, as all great uh, things are started. Um, uh, <clears throat> and this, this person writes, um, this, this research topic redacted is not something that I particularly want to be remembered for. Um, the results were predictable and people would agree. What's the moral of the story? Well, work on something that people can easily work on something that people can relate to and easily understand our funding in the sciences would likely be greater if the lay public really understood how our efforts impact their lives. Um, so this is a person who got famous for doing one thing who wants to be known for doing something else. And it's just, I, I, I just don't get it. Right. I just I really don't get it. Like I, you know, I mean, yeah, we do this podcast and we're not, you know, hey, if you remember me as a guy who uh, has pictures of him wearing the, a cockroach costume. Right. I'm OK with that. Like, I'm, I'm really OK with that because, you know, that was for a good cause and there's a good story there. Um, and that's fine. Right. Uh, so it's not. Yeah. I mean, sure. I want to be known for doing good research, um, but I also want to be known as a guy who could take a joke. You know, right, right. right. And it's not afraid to look a little foolish if it's in service of the story. I, I will I will happily be known as uh, Dr. Roadkill. I'm OK. <laughs> I'm OK with that. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. But but if I if I started my uh, my career, you know, if I looked from the start of my career and thought, oh, you know, someday uh, I will. 
I, I would love to be known as Dr. Roadkill. Uh, I, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't thinking about it, but, but this is all, it's all, it's in the show. It's in the show, right? Like yeah. the, it's the same, it's the same with our, with our careers in the career. It's in the career. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and we can't, we can't always choose what people are going to, um, remember us for. Um, and, and, and hope, you know, hopefully we roll with it and not, not get embarrassed. I, yeah. I think we're, I think we're, we're walking around this one a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, I just, you know, it just, it just, it just hit me the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, now I know, you know, now I know. So every time I talk about this, uh, I'm not going to mention this person. I'm only going to mention the student who got famous. So, oh, and that's, yeah, I like it. That's a good call. And I, I might even say the person doesn't even want to be known for this. So I'm not even gonna tell you who he is or what his name is. Right, right, right. Good, good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I'm going to do, I, I'm going to tell a story about someone who might not want to be known for this, this thing. Um, but, uh, I, I, I gave a talk, um, uh, Oh, Hey, well, here's a, actually, this is, this is all part of the same, same kind of thing. All right. So, um, if you've been reading the New York times, or I think it's known as the failing New York times by some, by some people, um, I prefer the Amazon Washington post myself, Amazon Washington post the feel. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you've been reading the New York Times at all around um, uh, o- the opioid uh, epidemic and crisis and settlements with uh, OxyContin uh, makers, the the name Sackler might might like ring a bell. Um, and so the Sackler family, mm. mm-hmm. um, it, uh, under uh, I think they created Purdue Pharma is the name. So it was the original development yep. developer yep. of OxyContin. So anyway. Um, where where was this story going? Well, um, I, I it's it's going to get to Bill Sperber in a minute, but nice. um, yeah, but uh, I, I I did uh, Gary Gary Acuff um, from Texas A and M, friend of the podcast, friend of the show, friend of ours, uh, friend of mine. You know, it's like a, like all the just like <laughs> like a, all the great some, friends, yeah, like a Sopranos uh, situation. He's a friend of ours. Uh, he he invited me um, to give a talk uh, a couple of years ago on food safety at the Sackler Institute for Nutrition um, at the New York Academy of Sciences. Right, Ooh. so sounds cool. New York Academy of Science. Don't know anything about it. Start looking it up. Hey, this has been around for a long time. Cool spot. Right, like beautiful um, setting. Um, don't you know? I don't think of who the Sacklers are. I just know that I get a bunch of messages from the Sackler Institute. Maybe it's some guy named Dave Sackler. Who knows. Um, turns out Sackler Institute is, uh, was funded by the Sackler family, um, to, to do, uh, nutrition, uh, as, as a way, I don't know why. I mean, I guess they're into nutrition as, uh, as pharma, pharma, pharmacology people. Um, anyway, uh, you know, th- there's been just so much about, um, this this family and uh, things that were recorded and off the record and on the record about dealings around um, settlements and what they knew and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not going to get into that. Go go read the New York Times um, articles about this. But anyway, it it was like I, I made a conscious decision after being involved in a couple of rounds of these and then learning more about the Sackler family. I'm like, you know what? I probably just won't do any more Sackler Institute things because I just got a weird feeling about it, right? Like like because. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, but, but I'm not gonna, I'm not going to erase this, you know, from my, you know, from my world. I'm just going to tell a story about how I guess it's important. And I'd never really thought about it before on if someone's name's associated with something, knowing what that person did and what, you know, what they might've been associated with might influence whether I go do something right. Like, does that, does that make sense? Like, if I'd known about the, 
um, the Sackler connection, I probably wouldn't have gone to do this talk at the Sackler Institute. Well, but when, so when were you asked to give the talk? Oh, it was a couple of years ago. It was before all this information came out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so right. So, so they were just a, a company that, that, you know, was a, that, that basically were, you know, uh, philanthropies, philanthropists, right. right? They're, they're really got risk, rich, rich in pharmaceuticals, but they were putting, giving money back and doing good things. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and so I, I just never, like, I really never even thought about it. And then, then I, as I was reading, cause I, cause I read things, uh, I was reading about it and I was like, oh, this is the same company, you know, it's the same family. Anyway. So at the first place, first time I went to the Sackler Institute to give a talk, Bill Sperber, um, was there and Bill Sperber, uh, you know, was a founding, founding <clears throat> individual of, of the world of HACCP. Yep. Uh, and his legacy, although he might not be wanting to be remembered by this, was I had never met him. I had read his stuff. I had, um, I had talked to um, Carol Wallace and uh, Sarah Mortimer, who had written a couple of textbooks with Bill about HACCP and HACCP implementation. And, and my lasting uh, memory of Bill is him banging a cane on a table during his talk about how people got HACCP wrong that's how I'm going to remember him, right? That might not be why, what he wants to be remembered by. Maybe it is, but, but that's, it, it's like, if it's, if it's in the career, it's in the career, I guess that, that was my, my roundabout way to tell the story. Huh? It's interesting. Sure. Sure. That's, I it's something. I wasn't sure where you're going with this one. I didn't, I don't even know if I really landed it. Uh, <sighs> all right, let's move on. So, to the next so, so Bill, back. Bill is currently the president of, uh, the friendly microbiologist LLC. Oh, cool. Well, there you go. Uh, and, uh, uh, and he's a very friendly man. He doesn't usually bang his cane, Ben. I, I don't know if you know Bill Sperber, but, uh, he was he's bang- a very, he's a very soft-spoken man. He was banging his cane, Don. I'm surprised. Surprised. Bang- yep. Me, me too is my, my impression of him. And I thought, okay, I like it. I like that you're banging your cane. Uh, Don, oh my gosh. We're the, so a little bit of, of feedback from SGH. I didn't realize we got the same byline. So uh, moving moving forward, and hopefully I didn't just uh, um, nope I didn't uh, oh no I skipped one we'll come back to it in a second but um, CNN article by Sandy Lamott from uh, September twenty eighth is entitled bacteria are likely hiding in your household washing machine and this came by um, SJH underscore Canada on Twitter um, and uh, and and so I think SJH said hey have you guys seen this and, and I think the response is like yeah bacteria is everywhere. Uh, and but there might be, <laughs> yep. but there might be uh, something else anyway. The the uh, the headline of they are likely bacteria are likely hiding in your household washing machine. Uh, I don't think they're actually hiding. They just are everywhere. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So this is this is an interesting one. So this one. Um, so I actually. <clears throat> I think this. So one of the things that. So I'm. I'm an editor of a journal. Uh, I'm one of the editors for the journal Applied and Environmental Microbiology, which is published by the American Society for Microbiology. And so one of the things that journalists started doing is indicating when an editor handles a manuscript, our names are going on the manuscript, right? And, and not not as an author, but just it's listed on the web page as it was edited by so and so. And and so I was part of a paper uh, that basically was an outbreak investigation of multi-drug resistant pathogens um, affecting premature babies in a German hospital neonatal intensive care unit. And the bottom line is that the the folks who published the paper eventually figured out that the the infections were being traced back to a washing machine 
protein that had become colonized with this particular microorganism. Um, and, and the stuff that was getting washed in that washing machine was being given to these babies, which was causing uh, the outbreak. And so it was a very, uh, uh, very interesting paper to handle. Um, uh, it went through a variety of twists and turns, which I probably, you know, shouldn't talk about. But but in the end, they got it published uh, and it ended up uh, being flagged as newsworthy and it made it into, I think, into our spotlights. And so bottom line is the, the bacteria, the Klebsiella uh, oxytoca uh, or oxytosa bacteria were found in the detergent drawer and on the rubber door seal of the uh, household, household washing machine and two sinks in the area. Uh, when they removed the machine from the hospital, uh, the inspection, the infections stopped. So, uh, but the, so uh, Sandy, who apparently works on the, the germ beat, um, yeah. uh, basically, uh, uh, decided that, uh, it, this was a, um, uh, this was be a good uh, topic for an article, and she reached out to Chuck Gerba. Chuck has actually done some, you know, pretty good work on um, bacteria and washing machines, and and has shown that they can be colonized, or they can contain, uh, they can cont can contain bacteria. Um, Chuck's uh, good uh, pull quote uh, from this, uh, which I don't agree with, uh, is that you'll get more E dash coli. He probably didn't say E dash coli, <laughs> but, uh, but he says it, it was translated into the article. You'll get more E dash coli on your face when you dry it with a towel than if you stuck your head in a toilet and flushed. Um, you know, I, that's a great quote. Uh, I wish I'd thought of it, uh, but I don't think it's necessarily correct. So, um, yeah. So, and was I, I, I want to say I was interviewed on this. Maybe I wasn't, maybe I just talked about it on Twitter, but anyway, um, if they had talked to me, uh, I would have said, uh, yeah, not, not a risk. So. Right, right, right. Yep. Um, okay. I'm going to go back to one that I, uh, um, that I skipped that was, uh, from, uh, Stephanie Brown, who's, uh, I think at Oregon state university. Um, now I met, uh, I met Stephanie, I think through the, um, IAFP student professional development group. Uh, anyway, she sent us something or tagged us on, on Twitter, uh, about a, um, an incident in, um, uh, I think it was in Oregon, uh, related to, uh, someone putting meth, uh, in, um, uh, 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 bean dip. And so, uh, the article is Oregon deli worker arrested after feeding colleagues, meth laced bean dip, uh, deputies say, uh, Cassandra, uh, Melinda Hernandez of Albany was arrested. What, uh, um, Wednesday, um, she was held in jail on the suspicion of del delivery of methamphetamine and causing another person who had just ingested controlled substance. According to the probable cause affidavit, surveillance footage from the deli, um, showed her removing something from inside of her bra while her back was to the camera, go behind a microwave, and then lean down and wipe her nose when she stood up. Then she went to a table, got a small paper dish, turned her back again to the camera, and placed the bean dip in the dish. The affidavit said that the item she re retrieved from her bra also appeared to be on the plate. Um, and uh, then she allowed two store employees to eat from the dish, and she also ate some of her herself, uh, and then uh, people got uh, got sick. Um, uh, anyway, so um, I, this what reminded me a little bit of um, an, uh, an incident that happened in Tampa a couple of years ago, um, and so we'll link to this uh, in show notes, um, and uh, a, kind of an unsolved uh, situation where um, a couple of people uh, bought some steak and uh, got sick from LSD. Uh, and, 
uh, it was a um, uh, a woman and her uh, and her daughters, uh, and then uh, I believe her husband and uh, you know six year old and seven year old um, uh, uh, um, uh, were consuming uh, you know consume some uh, some LSD, uh, and then um, it, you know a pretty pretty scary um, situation, um, and so. In that case, it was, uh, and I'll read from this article, investigators spoke with representatives from Cargill, the company that produced the meat. They learned the beef was slaughtered in uh, Noonan, Georgia. From there, it was packed and shipped in a sealed container to a distribution center facility in Winter Haven. Um, and there was no uh, you know, signs of tampering. Uh, the the meat was uh, sold through Walmart. And, and in fact, so no one really ever solved that case as far as I can tell from my little Googling earlier today. Um, but so lacing food with uh, with drugs is not not new. Um, and, you know, anytime we've got food that's that's out there in the open um, around food handlers, which is how we make food, uh, there's a chance that there's some, uh, you know, nasty folks that are going to put something in there. That's a very small, small, small chance because the vast majority of meals that we eat don't have uh, LSD in them, at least the ones that I eat. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I gotta ask. I wonder. I, I would have thought LSD would be heat, heat labile. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't know enough about. Maybe this is uh, Carpaccio. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know enough about. I don't know enough about LSD. Well, apparently, there's a whole uh, Reddit thread on LSD and heat degradation. Uh, <laughs> let's let's click that. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Well, uh, detectives are here. Uh, <laughs> how easily does LSD degrade? We've got 10 strips of acid tucked in the back of a book. Okay. So <laughs> serve well. food on that book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh. Uh, LSD books. Um, okay. So we got that. Yeah, well, that's that's a rat hole we're not going to go down. So, no, no, yeah, no, we should no. we should we're not even going to link to that. Um, so there's yeah, so there's yeah. a few more. I don't know. Like we're we're uh, we're already on a, a I think a three walk podcast for Dr. Harris. Um, right now <laughs> we're uh, two hours and 20 minutes or so into this. I, there's one more that I just want to do quick and then should we save some of this feedback? Are there any other things? Um, do you want to save them? Maybe try and see if we can squeeze a episode in next week. To talk yeah, it's fine. Them. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to wrap it up uh, whenever you'd like. So, yep. okay. So the last, the last one I want to want to touch on was goes back to our discussion two episodes ago about live lobsters and dead lobsters. Oh yes. Yeah. And so um, this is uh, uh, from we'll, we'll we'll say from Deep Lobster Deep or uh, Deep Lobster Tank Deep Lobster Clarification. Um, so you can read my message, but not deep, my name. Deep, deep Tank. Deep Tank. Deep Tank. Uh, hello from the Southwest. I want to comment concerning the dead lobster in the tank situation. I, <laughs> dead lobster in the tank. Yeah. Dead lobster in the tank. Uh, I think the core of the issue is determining when the lobster is considered food or specifically when it's considered a TCS food subjected to temperature control. And that was a nuance that we did not hit. And this is a great message. So uh, Deep Tanks goes on to say, I don't believe that there is a reference in the food code concerning live animals that are intended for food and how they are to be treated and cared for. Live animals intended for food would probably be subjected to state ag, USDA, or FDA oversight. I would think and argue that once the lobster is dead and, and it is intended to be consumed as food, then it would be subjected to temperature control as raw food. Uh, this would mean the dead lobster would need to be removed from the tank, depending on the tank's water temperature, and placed in refrigeration at 41 degrees uh, or below 41 degrees. 
Um, this is probably how I would approach the scenario. And if there was no recording in, uh, indicating how the dead lobster, how long the dead lobster had been in the tank, date marking, then I would advise them to discard it. Yeah, <laughs> yes. and yes, and this is good. Like, I, yeah, this was the the nuance that I think we that I think we missed. So uh, going back in my recollection, I think the lobster tank temperatures, I think we're were were ideally not at below forty one. Like it was in the fifties. So so I could definitely see how. A live lobster is a live lobster in a tank, and a dead lobster is food in a tank, and that food is now not being held at the proper temperature. So, yeah, really yeah. good clarification. Yeah, and, and not to mention cross-contamination and all the other risks that we talked about. Right, but, yeah, right, right. yeah, no, good, very good feedback. Cool, cool, cool. Um, all right, well, I think we should we should call that a show, and we'll uh, come back to some more of these feedback feedbacks uh, in another episode. Um Don, always great to talk to you. I miss I miss talking to you when when we don't talk for a little while. So, absolutely. Um, uh, so uh, so we're back at it, and uh, um, all right. So uh, we'll talk to you later. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. So, that was good. This one's mine, yeah. right? Yep. Sorry, I got a little long-winded in one of my my stories. Oh, well. no, it's okay. It's okay. I, I got nothing else to do except I just got to eat lunch at some point. Right. Um, I'm, I'm hungry now. I'm <laughs> very hungry. Uh, okay. So this one is mine. Yep. Um, I am. Uh, I'm gonna go edit this now and get it up. Uh, or some. Uh, we have no hockey tonight. No one's got hockey. No hockey. Yeah. So it's a it's a big day, of no hockey. Um. I am okay, so I'm gonna do that. Would you? What's what is your? What does next week look like for you? Yeah. After, so I'm. I've got Wednesday morning. I'm skyping into Beth's class. That's ten thirty until noon, and then I don't have anything until three. So if you wanted to record Wednesday, I could do noon till three. Wait, what day are you skyping into Beth's class? Wednesday, the October sixteenth. Okay. Yeah. So I've, I, that, yeah, I've got another, another meeting, um, same group chapter, New Jersey chapter 12. Um, I was, I had put down in my calendar to go to the IFT student association virtual graduate fair, but then I realized that when I investigated further, they were going to actually charge graduate programs to be part of that. Ooh. Um, 
I thought about like making a fictitious identity and going in as a prospective graduate student to see what they had going on. But the whole thing seems like kind of a scam to me. Press. Go in as press. It's like, <laughs> like I went to CSTE. I'm here with the press. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to delete that, uh, from my calendar. And so, uh, yeah, so I'm going to be in Monmouth Junction until about 1030. So, um, you want to do one o'clock? Yeah. So I've got a, I have a hard out at three, three. Yeah. So 1230, 1230 is perfect. Okay. And that's Wednesday, October 16th. Yep. Four, yeah, we are even, close. even one. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're almost on our bicentennial. Holy smokes! Okay, uh, and then that is not all day. Um, is that twelve thirty till two thirty? Two thirty. Yeah. I'll hold till three, just in case. Yeah, I just have a phone call that I'm holding. All right. Perfect. Um, I still did not get super organized and send you a bunch of stuff that I said I was going to send you to talk about. So, so maybe we can talk about that um, next week sometime. The, these are things that I talked to you about in your office about like thermometer things. Oh, oh, projects. Yeah, projects. So. Yep. So. So speaking of projects, uh, what about our other podcast projects? Oh yeah, yeah. So that's that's why I wanted to park this, um, this other thing. We we can. You know, it's an after dark, right? So we could talk a little bit about this here. I think so. I think I'm trying to think where I've I've. Oh, I, I, yeah. So let's slip uh, on uh, on a, a, a Slack channel, a Slack uh, channel. With, yeah, somewhere. with some some people. So yeah. So so what if we did? Okay, so I I I really like the piece of feedback that we got in from um from from listener who I won't mention her name um about uh, about people. Uh, and I like, like, I think we should add that to the list. I think we need to come up with like five or six and then let's just like bang them out. Um, you know, I, I like, this is one where I want to do some preparation, right? Like I want to be able to pull up some, um, some papers or some, talk through, talk through it, but also like, I don't know, be a little more, a little more prepped. Okay. Um, well, so. Okay, well, here's the question. Do you want to do that next week? Are we ready for that? Like, can we record? Well, yeah, and so there, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bunch of moving pieces, right? Like, there's the, there's the like, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I could be ready for that next week. Okay. Um, and then the other thing is we also, um, Merlin kind of volunteered to be involved. Yeah, yeah. So I want to uh, get him involved to whatever extent he's able Okay. Um, if we record Wednesday, that's the day they record due by Friday. Right. And that um, would be right at their time too. That would be kind of right at their time. Yeah. Right? So that's probably um, not going to work. So that's not going to work. Um, but what, yeah. Okay. So what if, what if I pitch something else to you? Okay. What if we did a new podcast sometime on October 16th, the Friday or not, sorry, October 18th, not 16th. Um, I am, uh, leaving town that day to go to Chicago and then later to go to Sun Valley. Okay. So that's not good. That's not good. What about the 17th? I have, I'm, I'm, I'm making kimchi 
in, in the morning, um, at, but at like nine. And then I'm scooping <clears throat> ice cream at two. So I think my kimchi making is not going to take too long. I could probably make something happen from like 11 a.m. until 1.30. Yeah. So I, I'm signed up for a webinar. Look, that I'm um, giving, that you're giving? Who's? <laughs> no, I don't think any uh, – let's see. What is it? It's the – it says Consumer Products 2020 Reg Webinar. I don't know what that is. Um, so – uh, it's something I registered for, so it's, I can I can bail on it. So what time? Eleven. Uh, yeah, let's say eleven, and see if that works with Merlin. How about that? And if it doesn't, yeah. So eleven, ten, nine, eight. That might be kind of early for him. Yeah, I um, but that's okay. I mean, he could whatever. We should. Uh, here's the thing: if if it's hard enough for you and I to get something scheduled, if we add in his time constraints, and I can, I can, I can. I think there might be a way for him to be involved without actually doing the the first part of the show or, or I don't know. We, I'll work on that. Okay. And we could even just like do two or three of these on that day and see how it goes and then say, okay, here, here's what, here's what it sounds like. Right. Right. Okay. So that's Thursday the 17th. Thursday 17th, 11 a.m. Eastern. Yep. Thursday 17th. Yep, got it. New new podcast. See, people don't know what we're talking about, but there's going to be something new. Yep. There we go. That's a good teaser. This is what you get for your uh, for your After Dark listening. Do you think someone will tell mm-hmm. us? Um, we haven't received an email like this in a while, but every once in a while someone's like, oh, did you guys know that you're, you're still You recording? forgot to hit stop. <laughs> yeah, you forgot to hit stop. You're right. I think everybody that knows – now about that but yeah you never know hey people are still learning about leonard kenny so who you know <laughs> have i told know. you about that show it's so good <laughs> i heard that it's awesome i just i hear people are they're they're learning about it every day there's somebody born every day so not heard merlin's analogy about the flintstones <laughs> and ass pennies um okay cool i think we got i think we got it thank you for all those uh, show notes you bet. Those, yeah, those are the ones that I captured. It, um, it's going to be root cause yeah. of the squirts, by the way. Just oh, okay, cool. Yeah. That's fine. Because it's going to lend itself to a really good uh, visual. Okay, I, li- I like three walk podcast, but uh, but that's three fine. Walk, it, they're walks. all good. Yeah. Oh, oh, I like that it was the three walk W O K. I was. Oh, what did you say? Three walk W A L K. So I didn't even hear what you said. Yeah, it was the three walk because because Linda goes on. Oh, walk walk. Are, it's too many. It's too long, right? She, she I was knows. I was trying to think like what? I didn't know Linda used to walk. <laughs> <laughs> no, she remember she said, "Oh, it's yeah, too long." Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. It's too long for my. No, I, I, it makes my perfect walk. sense now. I just I didn't know what it meant before, but I just put it in because it sounded like a good title. Well, maybe it will be a three walk podcast. Maybe I can find. A picture of three <laughs> walks like WOKs. Walk three. Uh, all right. Okay. Cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna edit this up and, and all right. uh, get, I'll, it, get it moving. All right. I'll drop the links in uh, momentarily. Sounds good. All right. All right. Bye bye. Bye.